Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I am Sam Eagle, and these are some important safety instructions Excuse for you. Me, Sam, Sam. Well, you can relax now. Everything's under control, and uh, we'll be on our way to the end of our moon without any further delay. Right, if you saw this summer's blockbuster film Pearl Harbor starring Ben Affleck and Josh Hartnett, you probably recognize these airplanes. Teenagers, give them an inch, they swim all over you. Yo, Kermit, my main frog. Uh, what is it, Floyd? We're gonna need a couple of more seconds to get this gig swinging. What? Every man. A king and every king's a clown. Once again, it's topsy turvy day. Hello, hi there. Welcome to my park. How you doing? Uh. Hello. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the Disney MGM Studios proudly presents Sorcery in the Sky. Lights. Camera. Action! WDW Radio, your information station. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 117 for the week of May 3rd, 2009. Thank you for tuning in once again. This week marks the 20th anniversary of Disney's Hollywood Studios, and to commemorate this event, I'm going to dedicate this entire show, and in fact, just a single segment, to Walt Disney World's third park. Disney historian and author Jim Corcus joins me at the studios to take a detailed walk through the park, looking at its history, stories, incredible details and tributes, and so much more. It's a fascinating virtual tour filled with things you may not have ever known about the studios and may just want to seek out on your next trip. I'll announce the winner of our last Walt Disney World trivia contest before playing some of your voicemails at the end of the show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. When the Disney MGM Studios opened on May 1st, 1989, Chairman Michael Eisner's dedication read, Welcome to the Hollywood that never was and always will be. And Disney wanted to clearly evoke that golden age of Hollywood and take you back in time from the moment that you pass through the turnstiles. And over the past 20 years, Disney's Hollywood Studios has entertained guests from around the world with its shows, attractions, and entertainment that exists right here on its very streets. But like all of the Disney parks, it's all about story. And much of this park's beauty 
lies in those stories, both real and those imagineered. And today, in honor of the studio's 20th anniversary on May 1st, we're going to take a look at the history of the studios, some of its wonderful stories, and many of the incredible details often overlooked by guests. And joining me is world-renowned Disney historian, author, friend, and most importantly, I think, Disney enthusiast, Jim Corcus. Jim, welcome. Well, thank you so much, Lou. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm just humbled by that introduction, and uh, I'm just excited that uh, you've relocated down here to uh, Florida. We're very happy to have you uh, down here, so hope we can get together uh, more often, maybe do even uh, some more of these um, podcasts. And I'm very happy today to, to share stories, especially with you, because I know you've been here uh, so often, and uh, you know so much. So the challenge was, let's come up with some things that even Lou doesn't know. And yes, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience, that background music you hear, yes, we are a slave to Lou's desire for reality. We could be doing this in a nice, comfortable, quiet, air-conditioned room eating chocolate-covered cherries, but no, we're actually sitting right out here in front of Sid Cuenga's at uh, the Disney Hollywood uh, uh, Studios, so uh, you'll be joining us for a virtual experience of learning about the history of the studios, and uh, hopefully maybe you'll uh, find some things that you never knew before, so the next time you come, you'll see things a little bit differently. Absolutely. That's always the goal. And first of all, ladies, please fan Jim a little bit more and get him some more grapes, please. So, yeah, I, I did think, you know, as we were talking about this, we were talking about doing this virtual tour, I said there's no better place than to sit right here. And we're sitting here at the crossroads. And maybe before we start, you know, I think um, people always ask, uh, you know, what would Walt think? What would Walt think of Epcot? What would Walt think of? And I think it's, a, it's an unfair question to a certain degree that, that really nobody can answer. But, you know, I think we're able to speculate maybe a little bit more because of the unique nature of the studios. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely uh, uh, right, Lou, on a couple of things. First off, when people say, you know, what would Walt think? I think we can maybe sometimes make a guess based on the Walt of uh, 1966, but what would the Walt of uh, 2009 think about some of these things? He was always ahead of the curve, always, uh, you know, a couple of uh, uh, jumps ahead. But I, I think in this case, this is actually a pretty fair question because uh, once the Disney Studios uh, opened in the 30s, uh, Walt was flooded by uh, uh, people, usually celebrities like a Mary Pickford or whatever, who wanted to come to the studio and actually meet Mickey Mouse. And so Walt got into the habit, because uh, the studio was much smaller in those days, of uh, even giving a, a personal tour and going around. And he knew which animators would uh, he could turn them over to, and, and, and they would uh, talk or do a quick little sketch or whatever. And, and uh, that would be uh, wonderful. And he kept getting... Um, uh, requests from people who wanted to come see the studio. So, uh, in 1941, I, I think a lot of folks are familiar with the movie uh, *Reluctant Dragon*, where only half of it is the animated cartoon *Reluctant Dragon*. The other half is a tour of the Disney Studios, and Walt was doing that for two purposes. One was to get some experience with live action, but second, 
for people around the world to see, okay, what does the Disney Studios actually look like? What is this process of animation, which seems so magical and mystical? And, of course, the funny thing is is he mixed in his real studio staff, like Ward Kimball and all, with hired actors. So you're going into the story room, and the person doing the story pitch is uh, Alan Ladd, actor Alan Ladd, before he became famous. <laughs> you know, so what, what, what are you trying to tell us, Walt? Well... You know, Walt even considered at one point bringing his uh, Carrollwood Pacific miniature railroad and putting it on the back lot of the studio and opening up the studio on Saturday and Sundays for tours and having the little train ride uh, there. He uh, even considered a backstage, uh, you know, how is uh, animation done experience behind the scenes uh, thing at uh, for Disneyland. That was one of the, the proposals for the original Disneyland. Uh, you know, by the 50s, this was pretty well set so that the publicity department under Joe Reddy uh, would have uh, usually a traffic boy, what we would consider an intern now, uh, you know, run VIPs through the studio. Uh, sometimes there were business contacts who needed to be taken through. Uh, sometimes uh, friends and family of the people who worked there. So, for instance, Annette Funicello uh, wanted her family to be given a tour. And, and her some relatives, who were quite a many, a lot of them, to <laughs> come over and do that. Or Fess Parker, uh, you know, one time said, yeah, my mom and dad want to see this. And so the traffic boy would pick him up at the security guard gate and walk him down the street past the commissary, make a right into the uh, animation building and go up to the second floor. And they even had um, visual aids on the second floor to help explain the process of animation. Uh, Sometimes, depending upon what your relationship was with the people working there, you'd go in and talk with them. Everybody wanted to go up to the third floor where Walt was, and the, the tour guides were told, don't go on the third floor. But uh, Walt was a good enough guy that sometimes he'd come down to the second floor and, and greet the tours and shake their hands, rub the head of the little kid or whatever. And then you'd go out of the animation building and go into the sound stages and sometimes see a scene being filmed for uh, Johnny Tremaine or Westward Ho the Wagons. And this whole thing was about uh, two to three hours. So uh, I think if somebody had approached Walt and said, we're going to be doing a, a theme park and it's going to capture that uh, behind-the-scenes uh, experience of making a movie, making an animated film, he would have been right on board. It might not have looked uh, the way that this ended up looking, but the concept, I think Walt would have bought into it. And I think it's more this concept, what we have today with the Disney's Hollywood Studios, as opposed to maybe the original concept, which was a relatively small pavilion, you know, located next door to Figment. Well, that, that's true. <laughs> you know, not a lot of people know that, Lucy. That's how you're so sharp. I have to be very careful that I've, I've got some goodies here for you. Because, uh, yes, uh, Marty Scalar and uh, Randy Bright, both Imagineers, once Epcot opened, they were starting to think, okay, what new pavilions can we develop? And so they came up with two that were almost put into production. One was uh, Wonders of Life. Uh, but the other was going to be a a pavilion devoted to movie making and you're absolutely correct that it would be between the land and the imagination uh, uh, pavilion and that's because uh, of course when Epcot was uh, originally designed the east side was uh, the analytical side of the brain which is why you have the angular pathways and the trees outside universe of energy they're trimmed like a box and all of that whereas on the west side it's the creative side which is why the pathways are flowing and the horticulture is out of control because you have the imagination pavilion you have the imaginative things that are going on in the land and the seas so that's where you were going to put uh, movie making and it was going to be a huge 
backdrop of the sky, so you wouldn't notice it immediately. It would seem to blend in with the background, and as you got closer to the pavilion, the entranceway was like an entrance to an old movie theater palace. And when you went in, there would be an attraction called Great Movie Moments, and sometimes it was called Great Movie Moments Museum. But again, it was an audio-animatronic interaction with uh, elements from uh, movies, which, of course, later developed over here to the Great Movie Ride. And something that I was excited about but never developed was Ward Kimball in that pavilion de- developed a section called Mickey's Movie Land, which would have shown the behind-the-scenes creation of the classic Mickey Mouse cartoons. Ward, of course, had worked on the World of Motion pavilion over there at uh, Epcot, so that was going to happen. But it was Michael Eisner who stepped in and said... This is a much larger concept. This could be a half-day experience. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, I, I've talked with Charlie Ridgway about mm-hmm. that, that people don't realize that what we have today is very much a part of Michael Eisner's desire and Frank Wells' desire to say, hey, this can be so much more than a single pavilion. Right, and actually it was a uh, business need as well, because Typhoon Lagoon was opening, and that was considered a half-day attraction, that people wouldn't spend eight to ten hours at Typhoon Lagoon. You might go there in the morning for four hours, maybe a maximum of six hours, but about four hours, and, and then you'd go back to your resort, or you'd go to the theme parks and see the fireworks, or vice versa. You'd spend the early part of the day at a theme park, and then you'd take a break and finish it off at Typhoon Lagoon, a half-day experience, whereas Magic Kingdom is like a three-day experience to try and get everything done. But Eisner was clever enough to go, not everybody's going to go to that water park. We need another half-day experience. And so that's what this was going to be, because they didn't think it was going to be that popular. Uh, How foolish they were, but they didn't think it was going to be that popular. And so that's why the uh, total amount of acreage for uh, uh, the Disney MGM Studios was exactly the same, or very, very close, to Disneyland. And, in fact, the entire design was similar to Disneyland, where you had your main street, here it's Hollywood Boulevard, and you're going down to the castle, in this case, Grauman's Chinese Theater, and you're there at the hub, and then the spokes going out into the different uh, um, areas for that to happen. And, of course, with the the hat, and we're not going to talk about the hat, (laughs) but the hat ruined, of course, the largest hidden Mickey in the world. Because if you pick up one of the old uh, guide maps for the Disney MGM Studios or find an old aerial map on Google and you take a look from the top, you see that hub area is Mickey's face. And the planters create the eyes. Echo Lake is one of his ears. It's just amazing. It's one of those aha moments. But once you put the hat there, all of that is is, uh, uh, gone. But yes, a half-day experience, so that's why there weren't an awful lot of attractions when the, the park opened. But within the first week... They found they were closing the park hour, just an hour or two after the park opened. And it wasn't long before they decided, you know what, we need to build Sunset Boulevard <laughs> because this is just not enough room. Right, and we're going to be talking about Sunset Boulevard later. But, yeah, there were all sorts of things that were going to go on Sunset Boulevard that uh, never made it. You know, a Dick Tracy ride and uh, Baby Herman's uh, roller coaster, Baby Buggy ride, uh, all of that. A lot, a lot of different plans uh, for Sunset, but uh, immediately it was, yes, we've got to... Uh, ex- expand that and so the entrance to Sunset was when the park opened that's where the uh, outdoor theater was that bowl theater and they had um, uh, a lot of shows there they had a Muppet show they had a Dick Tracy show uh, and, and they had of course the, the absolute uh, beautiful uh, Disney girl dancers where the legs just go on forever and ever and ever and, and as a kid I had that same experience at Disneyland uh, seeing the kids of the kingdom and I thought 
do women really have legs that go on forever and ever? And when the studios opened here, I said, Disney finds them. They still exist out there. Well, the one thing about the studios, like every Disney theme park, is obviously the level of authenticity. And with a, with a, a park like this, it was so very important because this was the Hollywood that maybe never was or was meant to be. But there are a lot of references to that golden age of Hollywood. And we're sitting here right by the entrance, and it starts even before you walk into the gate. Oh, you're absolutely right. And uh, as, as you know, I grew up in uh, Glendale, California, out in Southern California, and uh, actually spent uh, an awful lot of weekends and all going down to the real Hollywood uh, Boulevard and Vine and, and Sunset. And uh, unfortunately, in the 70s and 80s, that was not, <laughs> not a place you would want to be after dark. Uh, and uh, so to, it, for me, when the uh, studios opened here, it was, it was terrific. It, it was those best elements and it was those elements that I wanted uh, to remember. Because, uh, again, Michael Eisner also pointed out that it, it wasn't the Hollywood that was a a geographical location on a map. It was a state of mind. It was that, that Hollywood of the 30s and 40s that you, you know, you remembered that the, and that you saw in the movies. You know, my, my gosh, how magnificent that is. And, and, and I could do that. And, of course, the challenge facing the Disney company is the Disney company wasn't doing any live-action movies in the 30s and 40s. It was all animated films. So we had to go to um, MGMUA, and license not just the name of MGM and uh, the Leo the Lion logo, which had to be was a whole separate negotiation, but licensed uh, 250 of uh, the films from the MGM uh, library. Now there was a package deal for a lot of them because most people don't care about Men and Bill, the <laughs> 1931 uh, uh, MGM movie, but some had to be negotiated separately. So, for instance, James Bond uh, was a separate negotiation because Indiana Jones was going to be the James Bond stunt show, but the licensing fee was just too high, so that didn't happen. In Great Movie Ride, um, Wizard of Oz was a separate negotiation. So that's why when you leave Casablanca and you go through that wind tunnel of, of Mickey as Sorcerer's Apprentice, that was originally going to be the tornado carrying you to uh, uh, Oz. And uh, I would never recommend this to the listeners, but if you're in the last car, if you lean out and look over, you'll see as the car goes that on the floor there, uh, there's samples of different gold paint that Imagineers put there to try and create the uh, uh, yellow brick road which was going to look best under certain lights and, and all of that. But the rumor at the time, and this is not confirmed, it's just a rumor, was that uh, Turner was uh, charging a million dollars a minute for Wizard of Oz. And so uh, you decided, we'll cut the tornado. <laughs> Let's go for the bang for our buck with that. And then, of course, we have the little scene with Dorothy, and Liza Minnelli does the voice of, of Dorothy. And there's a hidden Oz. When you take a look at that scene, take a look. There's three globes. The lower globe is a, an O, and then you took, take a look at the yellow brick road, and it creates a Z. So it's a hidden Oz there. But anyway, we had to go to MGM to, to get those um, for that. But, but you're right. You, you want to start right here at the beginning of the gates? Let's start at the beginning. Okay. And as we enter the Disney MGM Studios, we see these green fin-like things. This is a, an example of streamlined, uh, modern uh, architecture. And this was actually the architecture for the uh, Pan Pacific Auditorium 
in Los Angeles. The Pan Pacific Auditorium was built in 1935. Now, you know what I'm going to be saying an awful lot of dates, because what we're going to find is as we move along Hollywood Boulevard, the dates keep increasing. That's part of the storyline, the chronological storyline. So we're starting in 1935, uh, basically. And uh, the Pan Pacific was the huge convention center, so that's where uh, circuses were and the ice capades and basketball games. Elvis Presley played there. Uh, So you're already getting the impression that you're going into a venue subconsciously where there's going to be a variety of exciting entertainment things for you. And um, the Pan Pacific was uh, uh, designed by architect Welton uh, Beckett, who was a good friend of Walt Disney's. And in fact, Walt wanted uh, Beckett to uh, do the architecture for Disneyland. And Beckett was the one who came to Walt and said, Walt, trust me, nobody's ever done this before. You're the only one who knows what you want. You better have your people do it because no other architect's going to understand. They, rem- they remained great friends for the rest of their lives. Now, the sad thing is, is the L.A. Convention uh, Center opened in uh, 71, 72. And so all of the venues went to there. So Pan Pacific fell into disrepair because it was old. And ironically... The Pan Pacific burned down 1989, the same year this park <laughs> opened. So, you know, the, the one remembrance of this are, are those gates that, that, that are coming in. And I guess if uh, listeners want to see what the Pan Pacific looked like, they could go to that uh, 1980 movie, Xanadu, with Olivia right, Newton-John. Right, right. Yeah. Because, yes, you, you, can, you can see exactly what that looks like, and then next time you come and visit the park, you'll you'll get that uh, uh, experience. What do you want to talk about next? Crossroads. I think we're sitting right in front of the crossroads of the world, sort of the, the first thing that people see as they walk in. Absolutely. And, and again, this is another example of what the uh, Imagineers call shrink and edit. Shrink and edit is you take an actual um, icon or a building or whatever and you shrink it, you make it smaller, and then you do editing. Sometimes the editing is uh, a, a change in color, as we'll see on some of the buildings on Hollywood Boulevard, whatever. But uh, here, Crossroads of the World is uh, an actual physical location. It's on Wilshire Boulevard, and it was the first uh, almost sort of mini-mall. The reason it's called uh, Crossroads of the World is because the real t- retail shops were done up with different styles of uh, architecture, Mexican, uh, Turkish, uh, French... Uh, English, whatever, but the entranceway was this spire with uh, an eight-foot diameter uh, globe, you know, so you were, it was literally the crossroads of the world. And uh, one of the reasons it's here is because, of course, in the 30s and 40s, um, movies were not just an American experience, they were an international experience. And people internationally were looking, you know, to the American film industry, and, and this was where people from all over the world uh, would come. I want to go to Hollywood. Now, of course, with the edit, one of the things they did is they have uh, Mickey Mouse on top. That's done by uh, sculptor uh, Perry Russ, R-U-S-S. I always like to try and give people credit because Disney doesn't always, and some of those names get lost. Uh, Mickey is five foot uh, three inches tall there. That makes me taller than Mickey. I just want to be clear. Oh, there you go. Well, you're not mouse size. How about that? And, um, you know, uh, one of the things, and you know this, Lou, is that uh, Orlando here is the lightning strike capital of the world. And as we're sitting here, we're seeing all these lightning rods sticking up on tops of, uh, of uh, buildings and, and all of that. So what's missing from Mickey's head? A lightning rod. A lightning rod. Or, or is it? 
or is it? Oh, maybe you even know the the answer to this. We don't want to have a, a, a little pole sticking out of the top of Mickey's head, but Mickey's right ear is higher, and so actually Mickey's right ear is copper. And then it is grounded from there. So if lightning ever hit, because this is about 44 feet tall, if it hit, it would hit Mickey's right ear and then would get dispersed as that went down. Okay, and uh, uh, right behind us, uh, this was one of my favorite uh, places when the park opened because you could buy press books and, and, and all sorts of things. But again, it's gone through these changes. This is Sid Cahuenga's. Now, Cahuenga Boulevard is one of the main thoroughfares in... Um, in Hollywood. In fact, the Cahuenga Pass uh, goes through the Santa Monica Mountains, splits that through, and at the bottom of the Cahuenga Pass, that's where the Hollywood Bowl is. And there's actually a great newsstand, the Cahuenga Newsstand. So when you go to California, go to Cahuenga and go down there, and there's a great newsstand that has, has all of this great stuff there. Now, the Sid comes from uh, Sid Grauman. So this is also a little bit of the foreshadowing that um, Imagineers are doing because we're going to see Grauman's Chinese Theater. And uh, Sid Grauman, good friend uh, of, of Walt's uh, as well. Now, the storyline the Imagineers say about Sid Cuenga's here is that there was a resident of Hollywood, and as Hollywood was, was uh, developing, uh, this guy didn't want to move, didn't want to sell, uh, and uh, so Hollywood built up around him, and so he then transformed his house into one of those uh, souvenir stands, you know, uh, 10 T-shirts for a buck, you know, <laughs> type of thing uh, that you could see. True story or fake story? Because we've already talked about Cahuenga. Cahuenga was actually the name of the leader of a tribe of Indians that lived in the Santa Monica Mountains. I'm going to say that it's true, that, that this, this house is there and it, and it was and this mall was built around him. You're absolutely yeah, sort of correct. correct. <laughs> this, this was inspired. There wasn't a Sid Cahuenga, that's, that's true. But um, it was inspired by what was called the Jane's House. And that's still on Hollywood Boulevard today. And basically, the owner of the house said, I was born here. My family was born here. I'm going to die here. And so no amount of money could convince him, you know, as expensive as that real estate got. And so he did, in fact, eventually start selling uh, souvenirs out of there for tourists who were on Hollywood Boulevard. And uh, today, it's actually in, uh, he's long since passed away. It's incorporated as part of a mini mall out there on Hollywood Boulevard. So people can uh, still see that. That's uh, uh, the Jane's house. Yeah, and, and I love this, and I think it's one of these overlooked gems. You can, there's so much to see. There's a lot of kitschy little things outside, <laughs> including the uh, the mm-hmm. signpost with, with mile markers, uh, but lots to see inside and, and lots of souvenirs that mm-hmm. maybe you can't bring home, I, I, although I would love to bring back the, uh, the Burt's jacket from Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm. I don't have $65,000 laying around. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, even b- before we start moving down Hollywood, uh, you know, another place I think that people sort of go right by, don't take a look at, don't sort of stop and appreciate is Oscar Service Station, which, again, has significance in, in name. Well, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, Lou, and that's, that's why I'm glad you give people like me an opportunity to talk about this because people don't look up, they don't look down, sometimes they don't look on the, the walls, and, and, and they miss some of the, the outstanding things that are out there. And, and that even includes cast members who work here and leadership who they sometimes don't know the stories, and so sometimes changes happen, not because people are malicious or greedy or whatever, they just didn't know. And Oscar Service Station, uh, a, a great story because, uh, again, we're in the Hollywood of the 30s and 40s. So in, in at that case, the, the main transportation is going to be the red car. Uh, automobiles really start to develop towards the end of the 40s. And 
and, and of course, when we go into the 50s, they, they, they really take, take off. And, um, but it, there are still cars, and so you need to fill them up with, with gas. And so these were, were filling stations. But again, one gasoline and oil is pretty much the same as the other. So filling stations became service stations. So maybe some of the listeners re- remember, even as a kid, driving in to a gas station and the attendant would come out and check the air and the tire and look under the hood and give you a map and clean the windshield. All of this was free because of the service. Super service. And uh, and it's Oscar super service. And of course, it's Oscar super service because? Of the Oscar statue. Absolutely. The Academy Award because we're in Hollywood. Now, here's one of the sad changes that happened is in the front window when this opened, they used to have, because, again, in the window of the service station, you would display some of the products that you were selling, and so they had cans of Mojave oil. And, again, that was a great foreshadowing of of, of coming attractions of the the story. I can see you're smiling, so you know where Mojave oil is. Where is it, Lou? In the the back, in the Catastrophe Canyon. Thank you. Yes, that tanker truck back there. Now, um... Oh, and if we went to Oscar's Super Service, uh, what would we get over there? Why would we be going to Oscar's Super Service if we were a guest coming into the park? We'd be going there because we didn't bring our car. We didn't bring our stroller or wheelchair either. Right, a wheeled vehicle, strollers or wheelchairs. So that's why it's there at a service station, servicing wheeled uh, vehicles for that. Well, and here we are. We're actually on on Prospect Avenue. Prospect Avenue uh, became uh, Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, because 1886, that's when Horace Wilcox and his uh, wife uh, came out here because uh, Hollywood was actually part of two uh, Spanish land grants, Rancho uh, La Brea and uh, Rancho uh, Las Feliz. And so uh, Wilcox um, uh, uh, bought a, a section of Rancho La Brea and they had an apricot and a fig uh, ranch and his wife named it Hollywood after a place that they had uh, stayed in Chicago, which was a woods with holly and all of that. She loved the name, loved the... So named it Hollywood. And uh, actually there was Prospect Avenue, but uh, when uh, the area became incorporated as a city in 1903 and then became part of the city of Los Angeles in 1910, they took the name Hollywood and Prospect Avenue officially became Hollywood Boulevard. So here we have Prospect, which of course is where young actors and actresses came with the prospect of going into into business, and it's turning into uh, Hollywood Boulevard. And uh, along with your listeners, we're going to be taking a, a little walk down this uh, Hollywood Boulevard here, huh? Uh, analogous to really, you know, are the Main Street USA of the Magic Kingdom, it's mm-hmm. the same type of thing. And you, you've alluded to this before about how you start to see previews of what's to come and how, like Main Street... In time, the architecture changes. It grows. This town grows with time. And as you enter Main Street, and we've talked in the past about how you see the movie posters, which really are signs for the attractions you're going to see, you see a little bit of that here, but instead of movie posters, you see billboards. Right. And in fact, the billboards actually tell us when the story is going to end. Pan Pacific is 1935, Crossroads 1936. We're going to be talking about the Dark Room, which is 1938. But when we take a look at the posters up there, we see one billboard, we see one for the Hollywood Canteen. Now, the Hollywood Canteen was something that uh, was open during uh, the war uh, for servicemen. And it was actually staffed by celebrities who came in and uh, danced with the servicemen and made them free meals and things like that. But it closed after VJ Day. So we know 
that this story is going to go up to 1945, but it's not going to go beyond. And the other reason we know that is by the billboard, the Hollywoodland sign up there, because Hollywoodland was a real estate development. And that was in 1923, and the Hollywoodland sign was actually a real estate billboard. Come over here, take a look at this. And that was on Mount Lee at Griffith Park. And um, uh, those, uh, each of those letters were uh, 50 feet high, was 450 feet long, uh, covered with 40,000 20-watt light bulbs. And there was a little man who lived in a little cottage under the second L, and it was his job to change out the light bulbs. Most of us would like a job like that, now, any job right now, but most of us would like that uh, job. Now, the sign fell into disrepair, and they donated it to the city of Los Angeles in 1945, which is when Los Angeles pulled down the land sign. So it wasn't like Rocketeer where somebody smashes into it. They pulled down the land sign, but they left Hollywood up there because it just seemed already to be an icon uh, for that. And so... We know it's not 1945 yet, but that'll be the end of the story because they haven't taken the land off of that uh, uh, yet. And then, of course, it fell into disrepair again in the 70s, and so you had celebrities actually adopt individual letters. So Hugh Hefner has adopted one letter, Andy Williams has, Gene Autry has. So originally you adopted it for uh, $28,000, and then you had to do upkeep uh, uh, each year for that. And then also the other billboard we have up here is for the red car, Pacific Electric Trolley. And uh, this is going to be a, a very important story when we get up to um, uh, Sunset uh, Boulevard. But that was the, the main uh, um, uh, uh, way of getting around Hollywood, which, again, is why we're not seeing a lot of cars on Hollywood Boulevard, because people would be using the red car. Walt would have used the red car. It was the most efficient and least expensive form of transportation. And the reason it disappeared was not because of Judge Doom, but because of General Motors, Standard Oil, and Firestone got together as a conspiracy, put it out of business so that it, people would be forced to buy cars. And we know it's conspiracy because they were taken to court in the 1950s, and the court determined, yes, these people conspired to kill the red car. But by then, the red car was long dead, and cars had taken over, and uh, they didn't even have to pay financial uh, penalties to, wow. to redo the, the red car. But, uh, yeah, this is all part of the story. But, hey, it's time for us to... We've been sitting here for a, for a long time here. Uh, time for us to get... And it's a beautiful day. Beautiful day out here. Uh, time for us to get up and start walking down Hollywood Boulevard and discover some things. Sounds good. All right, so we're now looking down Hollywood Boulevard, as mm -hmm. it were. Um, and, we're, and we have this, the, the beautiful <laughs> Sorcerer Mickey hat in the distance. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're a big fan. Well, I, uh, well, I, again, I was one of those people where people told me with a straight face, this is only temporary. This is only here for one year. And I've since learned that whenever Disney puts up concrete and steel, it's not temporary. Um, and, and, and as you pointed out earlier, Lou, this is very much like uh, Main Street USA in uh, Disneyland, but this is the, the Main Street of Hollywood, Hollywood Boulevard. And again, very similar to um, Main Street at, at Disneyland, you have uh, uh, actual buildings, but they're at a, a, a smaller proportion. And uh, they also tell uh, uh, stories. You know, we, we alluded uh, to over here on uh, the right-hand side, uh, the dark room. And uh, this, uh, again, was built in 1938. The original was built in 1938. It's on Wilshire Boulevard. Uh, today it's actually a tequila bar. 
but but the camera still is there as part of the tequila bar. So I guess if you have enough tequilas, that makes sense. Um, and this is an example of uh, what is called uh, programmatic architecture. Now, that's the technical term. Uh, what us common people refer to is California crazy. But programmatic architecture, if, if any of you who are listening who are doing your, your reports for school and all of that, that, that's what that is. Okay, And what that meant was that the structure looked like um, what was being uh, sold or serviced inside. So uh, the, the most common example is a, a huge hot dog and a huge uh, bun, and inside <laughs> you're selling hot dogs. And there's several of those, actually, in Hollywood. In fact, there's one here in Florida on Colonial Drive. And uh, it, it's actually had a recommendation as one of the top uh, hot dog restaurants in the world. They have I, these stickers. I see a research trip yeah. in our future. <laughs> yes, and, and, and it's great. They, they have like 20 different hot dogs you can get there. But anyway, uh, or you have a giant donut and donut. So, of course, the dark room was a camera shop. And, of course, here at uh, the studios, you, you also have the camera material in there. And, of course, this is so iconic that, yes, they also use it over at Universal Studios. So I often have people say, oh, they stole that from Disney. No, that actually exists that from 1938. That's on Wilshire Boulevard. And across the street from that, that's uh, Mickey's of Hollywood. And, of course, that alludes to um, Frederick's of Hollywood um, that sells lingerie. But interestingly enough, the uh, design of the building uh, is uh, three different buildings, none of which is Frederick's of Hollywood. In fact, uh, the side that uh, we're looking at here, which is the entrance closest to Crossroads of the World, uh, this is uh, a building that's also on uh, uh, Wilshire. This is the Baines building, B-A-I-N-E-S. And Baines was uh, the guy who started the uh, Hollywood Christmas Parade. And so um, what... uh, Disney was looking for was looking for uh, a variety of buildings, iconic buildings that would bring to mind that, that 30s and 40s, a variety of architecture as you go through. But to me, what's exciting is not the outside of the building, but the inside of the building. And I remember I came here when the park opened in 1989 because my brother Mike was actually working here. He came out from California. He auditioned. He was one of the directors in Screen Test, which is an attraction which is long gone. And I came out here and I thought, boy, what a great place for a vacation, but who could ever work out here? You know, unless you're working for a hotel or a restaurant or a theme park, there's no jobs. Six years later, I'm out here. Okay, so um, anyway, I went in and I was just so blown away because the first room is dedicated to Mickey Mouse in Steamboat Willie. So you have the the big statue of Mickey in Steamboat Willie, and if you look to the top, along the ceiling, you have icons and figures and all that relating to Steamboat Willie. Then you go into the second room, and you have uh, the band concert, which is Mickey's first color cartoon. And in 89, it was much more impressive, because if you stepped outside on the windows, they had uh, metal silhouettes cut out of funny animals. So you would be standing outside and you would be looking at the window of these metal silhouettes of these animals, looking at the band concert, and then Mickey inside. Those are long since gone so that there's more display space. And again, I'm sure they're gone too because people said, well, what is this? I don't understand this. And then the final room, of course, is Mickey and Fantasia as Sorcerer's Apprentice. Um, and again, that's the first feature-length film uh, with uh, Mickey Mouse. But then the story of Mickey Mouse stops there. And why is that, Lou? Why does the story stop with Fantasia? Do you, do you know? I'll, I'll help oh. you out here. Fantasia was released in 
1940. And then, so we've got the first uh, Mickey Mouse uh, uh, cartoon. We've got the first color cartoon. We've got the first feature-length cartoon. When is the next big change in Mickey's career? I'll bet it's Mickey Mouse Club and Disneyland in the 50s. And remember, our story ends in 45. So we end with right. Fantasia. How cool is that? Yeah, and it's one of those aha moments. I just isn't it? had an aha moment. <laughs> where, 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 where you go, well, of course, right. it all makes sense. You know, and it, it's what uh, Imagineer John Hench, um, and I got a wonderful chance to meet him and, and, and listen to him, calls the language of vision, where you're not consciously aware of how all five of your senses are being manipulated. Right. And again, this is one of the differences uh, between. Um, a theme park and an amusement park is a theme park tells a story. And so the story we're telling here, as I said, is Hollywood of the 30s and the 40s. So everything has to reinforce that story because you don't want anything to kick you out of the story. So on Main Street, you hear turn-of-the-century music. And if not turn-of-the-century music, at least music that evokes that era, like from Music Man, Right. But if you played uh, Britney Spears' Toxic, you're no longer in Main Street at the turn of the century, right? So yeah, We're going to ignore the fact that High School Musical is playing in the background right now. Yeah, well, and, 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 and again, the, 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 the way you... And, and they shoe in, shoehorn in all of these stories. So High School Musical 3 is in the background here because, well, it's a movie. See? And a movie's being made, and you're part of seeing this movie being made. And it's the, the, that whole thing with um, G-Force Records and... Uh, Rock and roller coaster, which no, none of us buy. It, it, it's a, a whole convolute, and I can uh, I'll might tell that story a little later. But it's a convoluted story of where, you know, instead of saying, "Well, this is Hollywood in the thirties, forties," it's like, "Well, in the thirties there was this, and, and the, but then this happened, and then it brought this, and that's why there's this guitar here now." And da, da, you know, and it's like, forget it. It's not part of the story. You've ruined the story. Forget it. So. Um, you know, and across the street from Mickey's of Hollywood is Celebrity Five and Dime. Now, uh, a lot of uh, listeners, and myself included, go to the Dollar Tree or everything for a dollar or, you know, uh, those type of, of stores. Well, during the Depression, uh, uh, Woolworth, uh, F.W. Woolworth, uh, came up with the concept of the Great Five Cent Store, which he then expanded into the Five and Dime. And uh, so that basically, even during the Depression, you could go into the store and for a minimal amount of money, you could buy a plate or a handkerchief or a cheap toy for a a child or whatever. And uh, these were very popular. So in in addition to Woolworth, you had Newberries, you had Cress, all of that. And so we have a celebrity five and dime here. And what's terrific to me is the facade of the building here is based after a facade of a building on Hollywood Boulevard that was the Newberries in Hollywood. And today it's the Hollywood uh, Toy and Costume Company. And uh, the coloring here is uh, a little different, and that's part of that edit uh, version. But the architecture, exactly the same. And it's Celebrity Five and Dime because, of course, we're in Hollywood, so you've got the celebrities. And also in the Five and Dimes, they had lunch counters. And in Hollywood... There was that, you know, rumor that you would get discovered at a lunch counter. So uh, Lana Turner, uh, actress Lana Turner, discovered at Schwab's drugstore and all of that. So this is the celebrity five and dime. So um, this is uh, a wonderful opportunity for this. And right next to the celebrity five and dime is a story, brand new story, 
fits in perfectly, but nobody knows it. Uh, there was the the building Sweet Success, which used to have candy, and now it's a a, a seamstress uh, a place, um, you know, where you can get embroidery on your your hat and the, and, and the whole bit. And so they changed the the, the name to uh, Head to Toe, which 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 of course is a very clever name. But if you look closely, you'll see that the actual name is Edith's Head to Toe, which refers to uh, the very famous costumer from uh, the, the movies of the 40s and all, Edith Head. And uh, this is a contribution from an outstanding uh, uh, Imagineering story man, uh, Michael Slater. Some people know him as, as Sean Slater. Terrific story man. Understands the business need, but also understands how can you incorporate that story, but make it subtle so it's not hitting you over the head and you go, oh, aha. Uh-huh. And one of the things in uh, Head to Toe, which I think a lot of people miss, is it has a very, very high ceiling. So instead of looking there, look up at the ceiling and surrounding the wall, all those frame posters of Disney animated cartoons, but only from the 30s and 40s. So, you know, but, but, but again, most people, they're just, you know, their eye is straight. Oh, I've got to get down right. uh, this way from this point to this point. And they don't look down at the ground. They don't uh, look up. They don't get those uh, ahas. I've been preaching to look up and look around for years, yeah. and I think some of the stories that you told, especially here in Mickey's of Hollywood, is, is just a brilliant example of the fact that nothing you see is accidental. Everything mm-hmm. you see is based on, and 99.9% of the guests are never going to understand it, they're never going to see it, they're never going to appreciate it, and it's wonderful the fact that they take so much time to put such detail in there and be so careful about it. And, uh, again, uh, you know, Imagineer uh, Joe Rohde, I talked with him about uh, uh, Animal Kingdom and what, the reason for, you know, some of the choices and things that were made. And I, and I said, well, Joe, are you, are, are you going to publish a book about this or, 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 or something so that, so that people know what this is? And he, and he said, absolutely not, because, because our feeling is it's the same feeling with Hidden Mickeys. People get so obsessed with finding the hidden Mickey that they don't enjoy the the, the rest of the ex- experience or, you know, they get so, uh, you know, uh, obsessed with finding, you know, this detail or, or that detail that they, they miss the larger story. They, they miss the forest for the trees. Now, I always feel that there's a, a, a balance there. I think, and one of the reasons I share all of these stories is I think by knowing these stories, there's that richer appreciation. You know, this feels right. Now I know why it feels right. You know, and I wonder what are all the things that Jim isn't telling me that maybe I should take a look around because, uh, you know, we're, we're we're just down the end of Hollywood Boulevard for crying out loud. We've almost spent an hour doing this, you know. Um, and there's so much more. And I there's mean, so there's, much more. There's so many other buildings, you know, the Max Factor building, so much detail inside. So here we are at the end of Hollywood Boulevard. I guess we're going to head over to Echo, uh, Echo Lake right now. Yeah, that's good. So as we continued our way down uh, Hollywood Boulevard, we were talking about some of the different styles of architecture and, and the Art Deco and the Spanish Revival and just how, how beautiful it is and how even individual stores, individual buildings have a number of different facades, a number of different styles, and a great example of that is right at the end of Hollywood Boulevard at Keystone Colliers. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. You're right, uh, uh, Lou. In fact, there's three entrances into Keystone Clothiers. Each entrance is a different facade. So... They didn't commit to, well, we'll just do this one building. They're actually giving you more bang for your buck, more value. You're getting, you know, uh, uh, three different uh, uh, styles, uh, three different little uh, emotional architectural uh, uh, triggers here. And, of course, 
Keystone Clothiers is here because it, it's uh, just on the side of uh, uh, Keystone uh, Street, which is going to be near um, uh, Echo Lake. And, of course, Keystone Street is, is very famous because that's the home of the uh, Max Senate Studios, the Keystone Cops. That's why they were... Key- I always wondered, why is the Keystone... Because the, the studio was on Keystone Street, and you filmed a lot of stuff outside. You filmed a lot of stuff over at uh, Echo Park. Echo Park's a man-made uh, 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 lake there. And, uh, in fact, I remember this uh, really funny, uh, silent uh, Harold Lloyd film where his heart is broken, so he's trying to commit suicide. And he's standing on this curved bridge at, at uh, Echo Lake with this huge boulder that he's holding in his hands, and he jumps off the bridge in the hope that, of course, the rock will take him down and drown. And he jumps off the bridge, and the water doesn't even come up to his waist because it, it, it's that shallow. Although there are fish in there, I've been to Echo Lake and, and fish the, the, the real one in, in Hollywood, and you, there's bluegill and, and all of that you can do. It was out there with my uh, dad and my brother's... Uh, uh, doing that, so Echo Park and e- Echo Lake, and again, it was called Echo Lake because when it was being built, uh, the supervisor was on one side of the lake, and on the other side, he heard uh, some of his construction crew, and they were talking very badly about him. But they thought they were so far away he wouldn't hear. But there was an echo, so that's how it became Echo Lake. But as soon as they planted all of the uh, uh, horticulture, the landscaping that uh, muffled the the sound, so the echo no longer exists there. But it's famous for its lily pads and. In fact, the whole area of um, uh, Echo uh, Lake still pretty much exists the way it is in the 30s and 40s because it became a low-rent district, so people didn't have money to, to rehab the houses and, and, and things like that. So if you go there, you'll see some of the styles that, that we see here at the studios, you know, uh, around um, uh, Echo uh, Lake. But, but a little f- further up... Uh, this is a, a favorite location of mine. This is uh, Peavy's. This used to be uh, Lakeside News when the park opened, and so it was a newsstand, and you could buy Disney comic books for crying out loud. What a, what a great concept. But uh, this is Peavy's. A lot of people don't know Peavy. Peavy was the uh, mechanic in one of my favorite films of all time, Rocketeer. Love Rocketeer. Love Jennifer Connelly in Rocketeer. <laughs> Love Bill Campbell in Rocketeer. Great, great, uh, great film. Uh they even used to have a rocketeer over here in front of Groma's Chinese Theater that would that, that would shoot up. But uh, Peavy was the great in, inventor and all. So you have, uh, you know, uh, for this beverage stand, you have, you know, all of these crazy devices and, and all of that for that. Now, as much as I love that, uh, this also brought me great heartache. Not because Lakeside News disappeared, but uh, you'll notice the office door here. Thank heavens they returned this. Because at one time they had scraped this off. It says Holly Vermont Realty Office. And then up above on the window it had Holly Vermont Realty Office. And uh, eventually, you know, they scraped it off the window. They said, well, that signage conflicts with the PV signage and all that. Again, this is an example of people not understanding the story. When Walt came to Hollywood, I think most people, especially with D23, known now that uh, the Disney Brothers Studio started in 1923. And at that point, Walt was uh, living with his uncle Robert. And so when he got the contract to start, you know, filming in October of 23, he couldn't do this in Uncle Robert's house. So he had to find some space. So he went out of Uncle Robert's house and actually walked down the block. This was in walking distance was the Holly Vermont Realty Office. And he went in and he says, I need some office space. I just need enough room uh, it just needs to be large enough that I could swing a cat. I don't know where that uh, expression ever comes from, but that's what he said. And I can only pay 10 bucks a month. 
And they said, well, for that price, what we've got is we've, we've got a, a, an office space right here in the, in, in the building here. And so sure enough, that is the home of the very first Disney Brothers studio from October 1923 to February uh, 1924. So they were only there for a couple of months, and they instantly made enough money that they were able to actually go further down the street to Kingswell and do the Kingswell studio that most people know, and there's pictures of now, and then in 1926 to Hyperion. But this was the very first Walt Disney Studios. And remember, we're talking about the 30s and 40s, and so Walt was there in, in, in the 20s. That's why there's a vacancy sign up in the upper window there. They couldn't rent the, that office after Walt had it because it was such a small... <laughs> little office space for that to happen but yeah what a, what a great story and how many guests you know pass by that every day don't know that story well uh in fact let's look uh, let's look uh, across uh, echo lake here we're looking at uh, hollywood and vine you know before fast food restaurants uh there were cafeterias like clifton's cafeteria and you could uh, go in and instead of sit down and a waiter would come and serve you a meal uh, you could buy sort of a la carte. So you could buy a meat plate or you could buy a vegetable plate or you could buy a dessert, you know, that type of thing. And so Walt and Roy in the early days would go into a, a cafeteria very similar to this and Walt would buy the meat plate and Roy would buy the vegetable plate and then they'd split it in half, mm. you know, uh, in, in order to eat. And this is actually designed after one of those very famous cafeterias that was on Vine Boulevard, very close to Hollywood Boulevard. And it, uh, in Hollywood, it literally later became a, uh, a post office. But uh, yes, this is one of those places where Walt and Roy would have gone in um, uh, to eat. And as I said, the architecture surrounding the lake here, very similar to what you would find in uh, um, the Echo Lake uh, area and very eclectic, uh, all of that, and, and just adds to that feel that this just seems right. Now, one of the things that, uh, you know, a as I get older, I just tell people that I, I just need to pull out my old man cane and, you know, wave it in the air, you know, oh, those young kids, that music is too loud, I can't understand the lyrics of that, whatever. You know, there, there are just certain things that seem to stick in my craw, and, and it's because so many things are done right, and, and you just see that one thing that is out of place, and you go, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, what is that? And um, right next to Hollywood and Vine is the Primetime Cafe. And, yes, there were, some, there were some TVs in the 40s and all that, but the big push for TVs really weren't until the 50s. What sticks in my craw is the name Primetime Cafe, because that did not, the term Primetime did not exist yes. until the 60s. And it happened when uh, FCC uh, chairman uh, Newton Minow in 1961 gave his uh, a speech about TV being a vast wasteland, that all you had was wrestling and game shows and gangsters and, and all of that, that there should be early hours, prime time that was set aside, you know, uh, for educational purposes, you know, to enlighten people or, you know, entertainment for children or the entire family, you know, or else the government should come in and, and regulate. So prime time is really from 61 and, and, and later. So what it's doing here. But again, I love prime time as a cafe, you know, the, the, the homage to meatloaf and motherhood and formica and, the, and you know, take, take your uh, elbows off the table and you're not getting a dessert till you finish your peas and, and all of that. But, but, how, why they came up with that, I don't know, and it just doesn't seem to make sense. And in all the research that I've done and all the people that I've talked to, I haven't been able to come up with an answer. You know, uh, we, we were uh, uh, talking uh, earlier, too, about you know, how sometimes changes happen at the, the park. And, and, so, and, 
And change is always going to happen. Disney's middle name is Jello. But sometimes change happens because people don't know the story. They don't understand the story. And uh, over Hollywood and Vine here, you know, it just uh, reminded me up there in the window, you see the little sign that says no actors. And that was very true. In, in the early days of Hollywood, the, the lower level would usually be the business. And then the upper level, you would oftentimes rent out to other businesses or you would rent out as rooms, whatever. But you never rented to actors because they were of low moral value or they might skip out without, you know, paying the bill, or they'd have wild parties or whatever. So that's why no actors. Real discrimination, but yes, that happened. That happened very much in, in, in Hollywood. Now, if you look down a, a couple of windows there, you see uh, Eddie Valiant's office. And, of course, yeah, we're all smiling. Eddie Valiant, who framed Roger Rabbit. And, again, this is a, a story that uh, takes place 45, 46, you know, around there. So, again, that's very much in keeping with that, and we see the... The silhouette of uh, Roger, you know, bursting, bursting through there. But when this park opened, and I came here, and I saw it, and I wish I'd taken a picture. I didn't. There was a sign in Eddie Valiant's window, and it mimicked the sign that said no actors. It said no tunes. And I just laughed because, you know, it, it references the no actor sign, but it also references the fact that Eddie Valiant, at this point in his career, doesn't want to deal with tunes and all of that. But then we had a, a leader come to uh, the studios, and, and he goes, we're going to be having character breakfast in there. We can't have no tunes up there. Guests will think there's, there's no characters in there, so take that sign off. <laughs> and it's never been replaced, you know, for that to happen. And so, again, Eddie uh, Valiant, we're talking 45, 46. You know, Peavy's uh, Rocketeer takes place in 1938 Hollywood. Mm. So, again, we're keeping in that, in that time period. Up there, we see that, we talk about foreshadowing. We see that billboard for maroon cartoons, you know. Even the, um, even the crates, and, and I'm a big fan of the crates mm-hmm. and garbage pails. Even the crates outside of Men and Bill all reference movies mm-hmm. from that same time period or even, you know, like the producers. A- absolutely. You have a crate going to Charles Foster Kane from the Rosebud Sled Company. Uh, you have a bicycle that's going to Miss Dorothy Gale of Kansas. Uh, you have a crate that's going to um, a Rick's American Cafe in Casablanca. People miss that all the time. They even... Uh, and. There's an example, too. We were talking about Men and Bill, the Dockside Diner there. Men and Bill was uh, actually a very famous film, but people have forgotten it now. came out uh, 1930, 1931, and it featured uh, Marie Dressler, who won the Academy Award as Best Actress for that film that year, um, as uh, a, a, a keeper of a Dockside Diner, and she had a drunk boyfriend played by Wallace Beery Bill, and, you know, the, the, the situations they, they uh, uh, went through. And uh, that ship, and it's really not a ship, it's a, it, it, it's a building, uh, that was built um, by the uh, same guy who built uh, the Columbia at Disneyland. Huh. And I, I wish I could re- remember his name uh, offhand here. I want to say Ray Wallace or Ray Williams, something like that. But, uh, yeah, he, he started working for the Disney Company in 57 and built a lot of our ships. So that is, even though it's a building, it's built like an actual working ship. And uh, if you take a look at the flags along the top, the flags along the top spell out a message. And we're not going to reveal everything. You're going to have to go. It's just like when you go to Typhoon Lagoon and they have the flags out there. The flags tell you something. There's something on Men and Bill because I want you to go and see Men and Bill for crying out loud. Uh, You know, uh, somebody should remember, you know, there was that film and and it was a Best Actress Oscar for that. Um, And right across from that, absolutely, absolutely... um, one of my favorites at uh, Disney, uh, uh, any Disney theme park, it's Gertie the Dinosaur. Gertie the Dinosaur. And um, 
Again, here's something where people don't understand uh, the story. Gertie the Dinosaur was an um, animated cartoon. It was ma- released in 1914. Um, it was done by Windsor McKay. Windsor McKay was a newspaper cartoonist. Uh, he did a very popular comic strip called Little Nemo in Slumberland. Uh, he also performed in vaudeville. He was a vaudeville performer. D- did chalk talks and quick sketches uh, type of thing. He did editorial cartoons. Very, very talented man. Well, in the Sunday papers, uh, and the cartoon comic color cartoon sections were much more elaborate in those days, they had little pictures that you could cut out, and then you would staple it together or paper clip it together, and you could flip, and you'd have that little flip book. And his son just loved those. And so Windsor McKay thought, gee, you know, you should be able to draw that and just film that, and that should work. And so he did a very uh, short cartoon, you know, just a couple of minutes long, of Little Nemo in Slumberland. And to show you how insane this guy was, he painted every single frame of film. So that when it was projected, you don't just get an animated cartoon. It's in color. And, but he showed it to audiences, and he showed it as part of his vaudeville act, and people thought he had gotten midgets, small people, little people, <laughs> and dressed them up, you know, to, to do this. All right. So he does another cartoon, and this is about a mosquito. And so the mosquito lands on this person, a very funny-looking mosquito, and he starts sucking the blood, and he gets bigger and bigger and bigger and explodes. You know? And who would have thought violence in cartoons would be so funny? <laughs> but people thought it was a puppet. So for his third attempt, it's like, I've got to do something where people, you know, are just so blown away. It's not like, oh, I know how that's done. I know how they swallow fire. I know it's cold fire they use. It, you know? Um, it's uh, So, uh, at the time, uh, the New York Museum had um, a dinosaur skeleton that had been, you know, discovered. There was a lot of publicity, a lot of attention, so he decided to do a cartoon about dinosaurs. Now, remember, this is 1914, so their cells have not been invented yet. So, he drew 10,000 drawings by himself on rice paper. And it had to be rice paper because it had to be thin enough so that you could see the background so you could trace the background. Because you didn't just draw the character, you had to redraw the background 10,000 times with pen and ink. Uh, and they didn't have peg holes in those days. And so he has little X's at the top of each drawing, uh, like an architect would be, to register this. So he, he, he films this, and he uses it as part of his vaudeville act. So he goes on stage... Dressed in a tuxedo, he's got a, a lion tamer's whip in, in one hand, and he goes, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to meet my new pet, Gertie. And he whacks the whip, and behind him is the movie screen. Gertie comes out of the, the cave and comes right out and looks at the audience. And he says, Gertie, lift your left leg. And he whacks the whip, and she lifts the left leg. And the audience is going insane. How does the dinosaur, how did he train a dinosaur to lift his leg? Well, he had drawn it. He knew exactly what was going on. You know, at one point he goes, Gertie, you look a little hungry, so he takes a pumpkin, he throws it up, and he times it so the pumpkin goes right behind the movie screen, just as he had animated a pumpkin going into Gertie's mouth and Gertie eating it. And at the end of the act, he says, okay, we're going to say goodbye now. He walks up to the screen. He disappears behind the screen because he had animated a little version of himself in a tuxedo with the Lion Tamer's Whip, getting on Gertie's back and Gertie carrying him off. Audiences went insane. This, this was the first example of what is called uh, personality in, uh, animation. Personality animation, and sometimes it's called character animation too, uh, is what Disney does. It's you laugh because of the character, not because of what the character is doing. Because up until that time, a lot of animated cartoons, any of the funny addicts could be interchangeable with any single character. You know, But with Donald Duck, only Donald Duck will act right. in a certain way, right? Or... Um, 
one of the examples I gave is uh, if when Archie Bunker comes home and he sees somebody sitting in his chair, the audience howls with laughter. Nothing funny has happened. Nothing funny has been said. But you know what Archie is going to do about anybody who sits in his chair. And so it's that personality and you're responding to that. Ub Iwerk saw this, was blown away, dragged Walt in to see this, you know, in, in, in Kansas City. Um, many of the early Disney animators said this is what inspired them to get into animation. Uh, and to give you an idea of how uh, impressive this was, uh, when the Disneyland TV show um, uh, in 1954 did a, um, a show on the history of animation, Dick Humor, uh, who was a, a writer and an art- artist, had gone and seen McKay on, on stage do this so many times, he was able to recreate the script, because no script existed. He was able to recreate mm-hmm. the script exactly and direct an actor to, to do this. So we, we, we've got Gertie here, and of course this is another example of California crazy architecture, how something represents what it's being... So- Wait a minute. What does a dinosaur have to do with ice cream? Do we have any guesses here? You know she's covered with ice. She's covered with ice and snow. In fact, steam is coming out of her nostrils, even cue, right? even <laughs> even as we're watching right now, right? Because she's so cold. People think, oh, it's a dragon. It's breathing fire. No, that's steam because she's so cold. Well, nowadays we know that the dinosaurs probably became extinct because a meteor hit and there was dust in the air and it killed vegetation and all that. But in the 30s and 40s, what did we think killed the dinosaurs? The ice age. The ice age. So that's why you have ice cream, and that's also why on the sign you'll see it's ice cream of extinction, not ice cream of distinction, which would have been the phrase from the 30s and 40s uh, uh, to do that. And uh, she really does have personality because if you walk a little further uh, up the pathway, and on your left you see these uh, uh, concrete steps going down, take a look in the ground and you see Gertie's footprint and you see it cracked around there too so it's as act, as if she had actually walked and then decided to just settle right there but again that's another of those um, ahas and in fact the Imagineers call that uh, an aha and, and the reason for that is that when you see it and you make the connection you go aha aha you know I, I, I think the, the most common one is uh, over there at the um, Magic Kingdom at the foot of the steps of uh, uh, Tony's restaurant. Mm-hmm. You look down on, on, on the sidewalk and there's the heart and the cement and the two dog paws, a set of dog paws just like from Lady and the Tramp. You know, and nine out of ten people miss it, you know. But usually a kid is the one to, to spot it because they're having it, they're lower <laughs> or they're looking down or whatever. And you see that and you go, has that always been there? Oh my gosh. And I think there's different levels of aha moments. There's the Tony's aha mm-hmm. moment. There's the aha moment I had when you're describing... Yes. Walt's first, mm-hmm. you know, studio uh, right. up above there, because I would have thought that that was just a clever sign, mm-hmm. not to have. But again, we talked about the integrity of the story and that there was a, a meaning behind it. Yes, and and again, you have to know the story, and so you know, I'm not adverse to making changes. Walt wasn't. Walt always said, "Yeah, you, you can pull things out. Yeah, you can take the flying saucer right out of there, but you've got to replace it with something at least as good. But you've got to shoot for something better." And it's got to work with everything else that's in there, you know. And don't shoehorn it in and try and come up with this fancy Dan. Oh, well, this was really, you know. Da-da. No, it, 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 that's not what that is. You know, t- take that extra moment and, and think through the story. I know there's a business need for this. How, how, can, how can we, uh, you know, um, make that happen? Well, like Tony Baxter with Splash Mountain. You know, Dick Nunes kept pushing and pushing and pushing for a water flume ride. And he couldn't come up with that, that storyline. 
And then as, as soon as, you know, American, America Sings was going to close, you know, he had that aha moment of, you know, I bet if I took those characters, they're very similar to Song of the South, we could do that, and we could put it in bear country because that would fit in mm-hmm. uh, with that. And, um, you know, by golly, that'll pull people over to that area. And, of course, it became critter country because it refers to what Uncle Remus said. You know, in the old days, the humans were closer to the critters and the critters closer to the human, and it was better all around. That's why it's critter country, because there was only one bear in Song of the South. That was Brer Bear. So, well, we've gotten off a a tangent here. And so uh, let's go past uh, Indiana Jones here, because that's a whole other podcast, except to to remind uh, uh, listeners of what they could do at the left entrance of Indiana Jones. What could they do, Lee? Always pull the rope. If it says don't pull the rope, pull the rope. <laughs> and you'll. And actually there's a, a series of about six different things that, that get said. And it's amazing how many of those are, are, are out there and around. And doesn't cost you a penny. Doesn't cost you a penny. And yet it, it gives you a smile that can last for the rest of the day. But yeah, we're at the end of Indiana Jones here because I want to point out something. I, I know I talked with you about the, this on the phone, but once you see this in person, I think this is going to blow you away. Let's go. And, you know, as we're walking mm-hmm. this way, sort of around the, the circle, I encourage people to go back to the, to the outpost and go behind the outpost because there's such great detail. And if you're an Indiana Jones fan, there's great details. There's great props there as well as right across from the entrance here as well. Jim, don't pull the rope. Warning. Oh, oh, oh no! Oh, blimey! Oh. <laughs> Careful! Destroy a single artifact down here. <laughs> brilliant. Nah, Little, a throwaway effect, but it's brilliant. And as we walk by the dip site, you see that it's dip site number 11384. <laughs> THX 1138, George Lucas's first film. So, I, I wish they had done more in here. I, obviously, the security guard is studying acting and all that. <laughs> But this blew me away the first time I discovered this, that standing here, see, the the pathway is different. Take a look at the trash cans. Right. Take a look at the lampposts. And let's just try and describe for people where we are. So if you're walking around Echo Lake towards Star Tours. Well, we're right across from uh, the Radio uh, Disney. Okay. Yes, where we're standing uh, uh, right now is we're standing right across from the Radio Disney... uh, um, uh, studios, we're, we're there. We're not quite uh, to uh, Star Tours. You might even hear the Jedi Training Academy in, in, in the back there. We can see, we can see it. But, uh, uh, and actually, we're also across from the uh, restrooms uh, as well. There's a uh, red guard shack, and of course, inside the guard shack are some of the items that the guard would have, including a book. Apparently, he's studying acting like everybody else. But again, as I said, I grew up in... Um, uh, Hollywood, and I actually visited some of the, the movie studios. You know, we talk about studio uh, tours. Universal started their first tour in 1915. Wow. Yes, and then the tram came in, uh, which was innovative, in 64. Uh, but other studios, like 20th Century Fox and all, offered backstage walking tours because I, I went on with, because um, my dad knew I was fascinated by film, so uh, you would pay this premium price and you could go on this walking tour. I was backstage in the uh, 20th Century Fox in like 68. 69 walking uh, back there but one of the things all the studios had 
is uh, I'm sorry, something I ate. Right? <laughs> right. Uh, and we were Lou and I were talking about that too. That when you hear that sound, that's also like the billboards, the foreshadowing of oh, I want to know where that is. I want to go take a look for that and all that. So we're standing. There's this uh, guard shack, and and, and of course the uh, the. Uh, board is up so that we can uh, get back and forth but at a real studio you'd have to you know get clearance uh from the uh, from the guard to go from the real world you know into the backstage world and that's exactly what's happening here because if you take a look at the pavement from where we've just come you know it's that it's that uh, red disney pavement all that once we get past the guard shack it becomes that black top because again that's backstage we don't need to put in all of that attention to detail on the side where the, the, the guests are and the public is and, and uh, all of that. The trash cans, they're green. They have nice little emblem on them, all of this. When we look past the guard shack, they're gray. And you don't have that little emblem. You have waste, please, you know, put it in there. You take a look at the lamppost. They're very elaborate on the right-hand side. But when you take a look to the left-hand side, you've got the green and it's curved, very utilitarian. Even the landscaping. On this side, it's trimmed, it's beautiful, you have the flowers. Over here, it's overrun. You know, and in fact, uh, uh, towards your left here, this is, it would even be considered uh, uh, what would be a tree farm. So you would uh, plant and unplant these things. You know, and even though we're hearing Star Tours, that themes in with this as well. Because as you go, you know, into the village there, you see that it's just a facade and all that. Yes, that's because that's where filming is taking place. That's not the real village. That you know, it's a set, and it's backstage. It's on the back lot. That's why everything is taking place on a soundstage here, as opposed to what we see on stage on the side. And, and even even the restrooms, right? A little tin, <laughs> little tin building. You know, it, it's not those. Oh, that nice, beautiful, uh, beautiful ones. But uh, let's let's curve back around over to the uh, uh, the plaza with the bus there, because we've got some stories for that. And as we're walking away, we're turning around and looking, and the name of the restaurant is the Backlot Express. And if you go through the outside and the inside, you see, like we were saying, the areas of the paint shop. And there's lots of little models and lots of props where the stuntmen are. There's a lot of real props from old films. Mm -hmm. And now, again, there's the aha moment that it just makes sense (laughs) that we are backstage. And, uh, yes, and and it's it's just a short walk. We're over here uh, right now. We're over in the... uh, the plaza of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. And, and this is actually a duplicate because the, the real Academy of Television Arts and Sciences is in North Hollywood. And they also have a, um, a, a, a plaza uh, with bus and uh, all of that, and they induct people. And right now, uh, Lou and I happen to be in, in front of the one for uh, Walt Disney. Walt Disney was uh, inducted into the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences Hall of Fame in uh, 1986 and uh, they induct usually about uh, five or six people at a time so he was inducted uh, uh, same year as Jackie Gleason, Mary Tyler Moore um, I believe Steve Allen uh, was that that year uh, as well and we're looking at this uh, bust uh, of, of Walt and this has a very very interesting story if you go around to the back of the bust there um, you'll, you'll see that it uh, has the signature of the artist B. Gibson, Blaine Gibson, the the fellow who uh, sculpted the partner statue and uh, the Roy statue at the Magic Kingdom uh, there. And the story behind this really is that in uh, 1963, as a gift for Walt, uh, Blaine sculpted a bust 
for Walt, a bust of his head there, and took it into Walt as a gift. And Walt literally said, uh, what the heck do I need with that? You know, <laughs> statues are for dead people. Get the, and, and, and Blaine was just literally crushed. And he took it out and stored it in his, um, in his garage uh, for decades. Mm. And when uh, Marty Scalar approached him about, you know, let's doing the partner statue, uh, Blaine uh, found the old bust. Uh, in there and and pulled that out to use it as reference because he had sculpted it while Walt was alive, and uh, of course it was it was also the the basis for for this bust that we have here, and um, this is actually a a uh, I don't want to say a duplicate sort of it's sort of a recasting because the original is at the one out in North Hollywood, but again uh, even as we sit here we see all of these uh, people just walking by not even giving. A, uh, a second thought, and Walt's right up here in the front. He's not even hidden in, in, in the back uh, with uh, some of these uh, folks. And you take a look at Walt, and, and he, he's so happy and, and all of that, and he's looking out over this park as well. And it, you're right, it's a shame, I think, that people just walk by. They don't come in, not only see some of the other beautiful sculptures, but in the back there are rows that have names of other inductees throughout the years as well. Mm-hmm. There you go. So we've made our way to the, the to the original icon or the original Weenie the Park, uh, the Chinese Theater, which is one of my favorite places, and, and again, just replete with details um, above and beyond just the handprint and, <laughs> and the nose print, uh, as it were, in the uh, in the cement. And again, in the background, we can hear High School Musical <laughs> Three, and uh, so when researchers pull out this uh, podcast twenty years from now, they go. What is that that was happening? I, I don't understand what that was there. Uh, yes, Grauman's uh, uh, Chinese Theater, and again, um, was owned and operated by Sid Grauman, and he had uh, several theaters. He had uh, the Egyptian Theater, he had the Million Dollar Theater, all of this, all of this in Hollywood. So he was a, a very popular um, character. And this was designed to actually be the castle at the end of, of Main Street. And uh, to that end, this is literally full size. They found the exact same blueprints from 1926 and recreated it. In fact, that uh, copper uh, roof up there, that's 22 tons, and that was lifted up separately, you know, by a crane. Now, uh, the one major difference is we see over here towards the left is the ticket booth. Uh, The one in Hollywood, the ticket booth, of course, is right in the front. So, because you're going to buy the tickets to to, to uh, go on go on in, and you see out in front the uh, Chinese um, uh, lions, the Chinese food dogs, and of course uh, uh, to uh, again tie into the the theme of uh, China and all of that. And in fact, out in front of Chinese restaurants, you'll see them, and and you can tell the difference between the male and female. Because if you go take a look, and most people take a look at the face and all that, nope, take a look at the leg because the female has her uh, paw on her uh, upturned child, and the male has his on the, the royal ball of, uh, of authority there. And again, they were foo because um, that was the spirit world. So during World War II, when fighters saw strange things in the sky, they didn't call them UFOs, that didn't happen until the 50s, they called them foo fighters that they couldn't identify. So we're entering through the spirit world into the world of um, entertainment. And, of course, out here, uh, Lou and I are getting a great kick at it, at seeing people, you know, put their uh, feet into the footprints and their hands and, and all of this. And uh, being a California boy, I saw that out in um, 
uh, California all the time. And I learned a very important thing because to me, I, I was putting my footprints in this. I, I later found out that actresses who put their feet in the cement would purposely wear smaller shoes so that they would seem more feminine on all of that. Men would purposely wear larger shoes than what they normally wore. Uh, now, now, don't keel over when one of these yeah. 14-year-old girls says, who's Lucille Ball? Yeah, like, I, the- I, li- listen, I've, I've worked with college interns, and, and every day it, it just surprises me that, you know, what these were Sonny and Cher you never heard of Sonny and Cher you never heard you know what is this anything that happened two to three years ago is ancient history yes it is yes it is let me get out that old man cane and wave it in the air and bend now in our forecourt out um, here and and I keep saying our forecourt because I I was a Disney cast member for a long while out here Um, the last uh, imprint was made in uh, 1999 and uh, there are some funny things to take a look at in the forecourt. For instance, uh, Charlton Heston misspelled his name. So he was writing his name, and in the middle of, of doing that, somebody yelled out, and he forgot to put in the L. So it's Charlton Heston. Uh, Lonnie Anderson's had to be removed because she's so slight, she's so petite, that she did not make a sufficient uh, imprint uh, into the cement so that when it rained, it was very slippery. And, and people couldn't see that indentation, so they slipped. So, again, uh, took that out. Um, there have been some stars that have done their imprints, but they were never uh, uh, placed out here, like William Shatner and all of that. Uh, Michael J. Fox used to come out all the time and put his feet and his footprints out here and uh, handprints and, and uh, all of that. And uh, I was uh, pointing out to, to Lou along the uh, side entrance here is a little plaque that you know, says the uh, Roman Chinese Theater, which, uh, you know, uh, opened in Hollywood, California in 1928. And that always bothered me because it's 1927. And and go take a look on Wikipedia and pull out your Encyclopedia Britannica. It's all 1927. It's, it's, not, it's not even a question of, you know, well, was it late in 27 and early in 20 no 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 1927 was a soft opening (laughs) and and so finally i i I cornered an imagineer and i said you know you that's really embarrassing you want to change that and he says uh no no jim it's an inside gag i said what do you mean it's in 1928 what are are we referring to steamboat willie whatever he says no there is 1928 feet of track in this attraction I said, I don't think that's much of a gag. <laughs> he says, no, but it's true. That's why, that, that's, that's, that's why, that's, that's why that's there. And, um, of course, a lot of, uh, uh, one of my favorite rides, uh, my parents loved always riding this when I, when I brought them to the park. Uh, a lot of uh, great things in um, uh, the, the great movie ride, uh, of course. And, again, that's a, that's a whole other yeah. uh, podcast <laughs> of, uh, you know, well, this and that. Uh, but 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 let, let's let's give you a, a, a couple of ahas for you to play with. Uh, you know, in the uh, western scene, where the sheriff on the balcony pops up to shoot the bank robber, Thomas Jefferson. Really? Yes, the Thomas Jefferson audio animatronic. So Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> our first gun-toting uh, uh, president there, um, and, and that's something that. that. that Imagineers have done for many years. Spaceship Earth, we've talked about. It. I think it, yes. uh, William Howard Taft is uh, was one of the. I think the Egyptian uh, eunuch. F- <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's no other way of saying it. You're either a eunuch or you're not a eunuch. There's no there's no in between uh, there. 
and um, the, the two gangsters in the gangster scene who are, who are shooting at the uh, um, the the car, uh, Squint and Beans, uh, they're two uh, pirates from Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, wonderful stories. You know, you see uh, Jimmy Cagney in there, but that's not the outfit that he wore in uh, Public Enemy. And because uh, his family uh, wanted him to look good. So that's actually James Cagney's tuxedo. <laughs> he didn't wear it in the film, but he's wearing it now for um, forever. You don't hear Ingrid Bergman talk because we couldn't get uh, approval for Ingrid Bergman to talk. We actually lost the rights to Marilyn Monroe's voice, so that's why she doesn't say hi in the movie at the end anymore. Okay. Yes, because we, we have to pay for for. You got to pay for every high. You got to. We had to bring down uh, 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 Gene Kelly and give him a lot to to drink before he signed off on his. <laughs> uh, you know, and and again, if you were here in 1989, his umbrella was open. Right. But what would happen is the water would hit the umbrella and then hit people in the car. That's why his umbrella is closed now. So, um, you know, uh, 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 different things uh, in there, so very exciting. But again, as I said, a a whole other podcast (laughs) for us us to go through. But, uh, you know, and and it's sad seeing, you know, you can just walk straight on, you know. But but again, people are in there, and I bet they don't recognize some of those uh, actors or even uh, some of those films. So... um, very very sad about that, but that's okay. Let's uh, let's uh, do uh, happy times. Let's uh, let's go over to those archways in the Brown Derby because I got some great Brown Derby stories. Let's head over. Awesome. Okay, so we've walked sort of clockwise uh, mm-hmm. past the entrance to the Great Movie Ride, and and, and actually with the entrance now of uh, what is traditionally called the Animation Courtyard, and it's got that brand new sign up there. Disney's uh, Hollywood Studios. I still miss the Leo the Lion logo and all of that. And uh, carrying on with the um, uh, theme of, of Hollywood Studios, you know, we talk about branding and all of this. A, a, a lot of studios had their own distinct entrances. You know, the, the, the gates at Paramount, very, very uh, familiar, almost instantly recognizable. And so the gates leading in uh, to the animation courtyard here are, ex- are distinctive as well. But again, it's got to be generic. You know, because you can't you can't use uh, uh, characters and, and themes from studios like uh, Universal or 20th Century Fox or whatever. And so, if you uh, uh, take a look at the bottom of the archway, starting at the uh, lower left, you see the different genre of films from the 30s and 40s. So you see the uh, baggy pants uh, comedian with his uh, bow tie and odd hat, and then right above him is. Uh, the traditional detective from film noir and the Busby Berkeley musical girl and you have the western and then when you go over to the other side you have the couple representing you know uh, the dramatic uh, movies you have war movies you know in the World War One uh, helmet there science fiction and, and then horror and uh, then again a, another aha moment for you and, and it will be for all of these people because you know what everybody listening to this when they bring their friends and family here not one of them will say I heard this on Lou Mangiello's podcast or Jim Corcus that man is incredible he just knows everything what is that so as as we come closer we see that um, there we have two animators one working on a uh, board over to uh, the left and he's drawing Donald Duck pictures so you've got your hidden Donald Duck in there and a whole series of that and uh, then on, on the uh, right, you have an animator who's looking at the uh, movieola, the finished 
uh, version, and there you have a hidden Goofy. You have the hidden Goofy on the screen and then on the uh, um, film strip that uh, comes out of it. So again, very nice touch, something that people you know really don't uh, uh, recognize, but something that people should recognize is uh, over here is we're going to uh, the uh, Hollywood Brown Derby. And one of the uh, questions we always get asked is, uh, well, how come it's not in the shape of a derby? Well, there were uh, several Brown Derby restaurants. The uh, original uh, in 1926 was on Wilshire Boulevard, right across from the Ambassador Hotel, and that was in the shape of a derby, a Brown Derby. And again, you're, you're talking about uh, California crazy architecture, and uh, this was done literally on, on, on a bet of that, you know, you could have a, a restaurant in the shape of a, a hat, and as long as the food was good, people would still come in and, and do it. And they were right, and it, it was so popular. But again, you're in the shape of a hat, so you can't expand that concrete hat. So um, they built a second version on Vine Street, and actually that's the one that's more uh, popular and more familiar than, than the hat, and this is what the one at the studios is uh, based on. And one of the reasons this was more popular was because uh, it was closer to the movie studio, so people could come over, you know, on their lunch hour or whatever, uh, go in there, and the Brown Derby was very popular. The booths, of course, were, were cut down so that you went there to be seen. People could see you. You weren't hidden in the booth. And, and one of the major innovations is you could have a phone at your booth. So you could literally take a phone call from your agent, or you could phone um, somebody uh, to have that. Uh, in 1934, uh, this Brown Derby uh, was uh, taken over by uh, Robert Cobb, Bob Cobb, uh, who was a friend of uh, Walt Disney's. And in fact, in, in later years, they were huge baseball fans, and they were on the advisory board of uh, uh, Gene Autry's California Angels. Well, Bob Cobb is the one who really uh, brought recognition uh, to the Brown Derby, and uh, uh, this is the uh, this is this is the the funny story is one night because again Bob Cobb was uh, living up above on the on the second floor and uh, he was good friends with Sid Grauman Grauman's Chinese Theater which we just passed well about two o'clock in the morning Sid Grauman shows up roaring drunk <laughs> pounding on the door and so Cobb has to come up come down and he has never seen Sid Grauman like this before he'd been celebrating something and and he didn't want to let him loose you know without sobering him up. But the restaurant was closed for the night. So I went to the kitchen and, and saw, okay, what do we have in the refrigerator here? Well, there's a hard-boiled egg. There was some lettuce. There was a tomato. There was bits and pieces of things. So he took them all out, put them on the cutting board, and chopped them up very, very finely. And then mixed them up all together. So literally, you know, uh, Grauman didn't have to really chew. He could just, you know, uh, swallow this. So uh, uh, sobered him up enough so that he, he could go out. And then uh, Cobb went back upstairs to go to sleep. Next day in the restaurant... Sid Grauman, now perfectly sober, comes in and in a loud voice orders a Cobb salad. And what is that? What, what, what does Sid Grauman want? What, what is that? What, show me what that is. And so that was the birth of the Cobb salad. Now, uh, this Brown Derby was also famous for their uh, grapefruit cake. Because in those days, uh, actresses were also on diets. And the very popular diet at that time was the grapefruit diet. That if you, drank, if you uh, had a grapefruit a day or whatever, it got flushed out of your system or whatever. And so Bob Cobb found that people were not ordering desserts. So what he did is uh, for Luella Parsons, 
uh, who, who was a Hollywood columnist and who threatened, and she says, unless you get a dessert that I can eat, I'm never coming back to the Round Derby. He came up with the grapefruit cake, which, which again is yellow cake, but it's filled with this grapefruit cream cheese icing. So it's actually got more calories than a chocolate cake. But boy, you'd, you'd see these little petite actresses and they were gobbling it down like, I'm on a diet here. I'm, I'm going through this for, uh, for all of this to happen. Uh, Brown Derby was one of the um, favorite locations for uh, Walt and uh, Lillian uh, to come um, uh, and eat. There were, there, they, had, they had a couple of uh, uh, favorite restaurants, but this is one of the places they like to come out and eat. There's actually a, a book out there that has a couple of pages uh, that Brown Derby printed. It's out of print now, but you can find it through all sorts of sources, I'm sure. Uh, it has a couple of photos of Walt and Lily sitting at the Brown Derby brown derby table enjoying a cob salad and and having a having a, a wonderful time well you know we've curved around uh, this way uh why don't we uh, try and make our way through the crowd over here and we'll get sunset boulevard we'll walk down sunset boulevard perfect so as we start our journey down sunset boulevard as it intersects with hollywood before we even make our way down and, and granted we could probably spend hours and individual shows on some of these buildings and what's inside um, each themselves but I'm going to start off by telling people to look up because the first thing you see in addition to the beautifully ornate lampposts is the car stop and the overhead wire and again it goes back mm-hmm. to what you were talking about before the red car right a- absolutely and um, you know I, I get grumpy about a bunch of things I'm not grumpy <laughs> about this I grew up in, in, in California so I know that Hollywood and Sunset never intersect. They're parallel. All right? I understand that. But they've done such a wonderful job with, they've done such a wonderful job with uh, Sunset Boulevard that, you know, uh, I, I really don't have any complaints. I, I'll, I'll, I'll suspend my disbelief uh, uh, for that. Yes, the line along the top there was for the Pacific Electric Trolley, the red cars, and we were just taking a look at that map of how extensive uh, they were, how much uh, area uh, they covered, and you know, by um, 1943, 1944, uh, they were providing service for uh, 109 million rides yearly. You know, uh, for that to happen, and of course, we start with the uh, barn itself for the Pacific uh, Electric Company, and again, 1928. So again, that's referencing uh, Steamboat Willie and the the start of that as we go across. But there, there's all sorts of wonderful little touches that, that we're missing. So right across the street, if you look into the, the sidewalk, you'll see the uh, contractor's uh, imprint in there. Mortimer and Company, 1928, <laughs> contractors. So just right on the edge of the sidewalk, uh, take a look at that. And actually that appears more than just there. It appears uh, elsewhere uh, on, on this street here. Nice little touch, and of course Mortimer uh, going to be Mickey's original name before he became Mickey in 1928 uh, uh, there. And the tip board that you have there, again, uh, set up very much like uh, arrivals and departures uh, on, on the red car. And in fact, uh, you'll notice that the information there is uh, written up there in chalk, just as you would on a, on a real tip board. And uh, a lot of hidden surprises over there, because you notice uh, around there, even the merchandise uh, uh, stands that are selling pins and all that are done up like suitcases, so people ready, uh, ready to, to go. 
Uh, that fountain you see there is uh, one that it, is. Talk about shrink and edit. This is <laughs> this is very very small. Uh, this is the Mulholland uh, Fountain, which was named after William William uh, Mulholland, who uh, brought water to Los Angeles, which would have been a desert otherwise. Actually, he stole the water, but that's another story. Um, that's not a Disney story. And uh, so that's on uh, Los Feliz Boulevard and. Uh, a place where sometimes people would go skinny dipping. You wouldn't do that at the Disney Hollywood Studios, but uh, uh, that would be here. So uh, lots of nice little uh, uh, touches along there. And again, we, we talk about uh, foreshadowing of events uh, uh, coming on. And uh, we see just uh, to the side of that uh, Pacific Electric Trolley building, right above uh, uh, the canopy that's uh, covering the uh, uh, gold car out there, um, is a billboard for the uh, Hollywood uh, Tower Hotel. And again, this is uh, giving you the clue of, oh, this is going to exist, but you get this feeling of foreboding because the tree's covering up much of this sign and all this. Why, why haven't they trimmed this away? This is a billboard. Don't they want people to see this? Don't they want people to, to come and, and, and visit? And even if you take a look at the colors, the colors have started uh, uh, to, to fade on that. And uh, as we start to move down uh, Sunset Boulevard here, uh, we'll be taking a look at uh, uh, some of the uh, movie theaters. Uh, And these movie theater facades, again, based on uh, actual buildings in the uh, Hollywood area. And even if you didn't know that, you get that that sense of, hey, it's, it's real. And so as we start our journey down Sunset Boulevard, again, Jim, like we were saying before, many of these streets are sort of paralleling or or analogous to Main Street. And don't just look inside the shops at the facades of the shops because there are signs on the sides of the road. There are are props on the side of the road. There's a cigar store Indian on Main Street where here we have, again, referencing the luggage that you saw down by the, the train station, you see some luggage around a sign for California's Route 66, the infamous Route 66, which, as you said, ends on Sunset Boulevard and begins back in... Chicago. And, and who else began in Chicago and ended up in Hollywood? Why, it's Walt. Walt Disney. And uh, if you ever forget when Sunset Boulevard uh, opened, uh, as you see this pole, just look straight across the street at the uh, building over there. Building 94. Sunset Boulevard opened in 94. Again, that brilliant attention to detail. And again, like I said, like Main Street USA, look up on the second floors of the windows because there you'll find... Not names necessarily of Imagineers, but you'll find references to films. You'll find references to some of the icons and landmarks. And if you go around the corner of Villains and Vogues, right across from the DVC kiosk, and if you look up, you find Max's Classic Directing Academy. Right. Uh, It's near the Muscle Beach Bodyguard Service. It says Max's Classic Directing Academy, the latest movie techniques. And you have an old-fashioned movie camera. And then you have the quote, are you ready for your close-up? Well, what does Max and all of that have to do with this story? Well, there was a movie, Sunset Boulevard. And that's the famous line from there, are you ready for your close-up? And yes, her assistant was Max. And so that's where uh, that comes from as well. So again, all these nice little uh, uh, touches. Do do most people uh, uh, see this? No, uh, eleven out of ten people miss this all the time. So, but now you won't, and you'll be a hero for your friends and uh, um, family. And uh, we're actually continuing to go um, down the street. There's some uh, uh, wonderful uh, uh, shops. The uh, Mouse About Town 
has some uh, wonderful photos in there, if you haven't seen that, of uh, uh, Walt uh, playing, polo, uh, playing polo and uh, swimming, doing uh, uh, some sports work. But over here to our left, we've got the Sunset Ranch Market. And this was, um, this was designed for, um, uh, to emulate, um, the, uh, farmer's market at, uh, Third and, uh, Fairfax, uh, in California. And if you found myself stumbling there, it's because I just came across something that had changed, and I can understand why it changed, but, uh, again, it just took me by surprise because I didn't know. Usually on the left-hand side, we would have Fairfax fries, and it would be Fairfax because Farmer's Market is on 3rd and Fairfax. But again, that was being run by McDonald's, and McDonald's has moved out, and so now we've got the Toluca Legs Turkey Company, and of course that references uh, Toluca Lake uh, for that. Um, Farmer's Market started out with uh, by two guys who... Uh, you know, tried to create a location where farmers could bring in their produce, you know, their trucks and uh, put their uh, trucks around there, start to, to sell off some of that stuff. And they thought, well, you know, if we build little stalls, we can charge them, you know, uh, 50 cents, uh, you know, a month uh, to use those uh, little stalls. And it uh, grew up uh, from that. But remember, we were talking about the, the storyline and how we're progressing and how I was so sure the, the story wasn't going to go beyond uh, 1945. Because you see that huge clock tower in the back. Mm -hmm. The clock tower was not built at Farmer's Market until 1945, right? So we know that it's at least 1945. It's not before that, but it's probably not much after that because uh, a lot of these things haven't changed. And uh, let's go back and uh, uh, take, a, take a look at a lot of these things because since it is 1945, we're talking uh, uh, the World War II years. And there are some uh, interesting references here, especially if you're a, um, a Disney fan, that, uh, that again, looking around the corners, you, you, you may have uh, missed, you may never have uh, seen before. So we want to point that out. So we're maneuvering through all of the uh, tables and benches here because um, we're heading over uh, to Rosie's All-American Cafe. And, of course, that references Rosie the Riveter, you know, when uh, women would take uh, uh, positions of uh, the men when the men were off to service. But right around the corner, you see a, a propeller attached to the wall, and then you see this insignia. This is part of Disney history. This is actually the very first military insignia the Disney company did for the military. That was for the Flying Tigers. And uh, let's give you even more value for that. That design was by Roy Williams, the big musketeer. Final art was by Hank Porter. And this was for uh, General Chenault's uh, Flying Tigers. And Roy Williams later admitted to me he had made a huge mistake because the name of the squadron in China was the Flying Tiger sharks. And so if you look at the planes, they actually have shark teeth on them. But the translation that came to the Disney studio did not translate shark, so he drew a tiger with wings. And, and that's the way most of us think of the flying tigers now, although the original name was the flying tiger sharks, which was probably a lot more vicious. 
And, uh, of course, we're going past uh, Catalina Eddies, which, of course, re- refers to uh, Santa Catalina Island uh, out there uh, just off the coast of Los Angeles. And we're heading to, on the side, the Victory Garden. During World War II, uh, people were encouraged to grow their own uh, fruits and vegetables. So the, the fruits and vegetables that the farmers were growing would be sent uh, overseas to the, the men in the service. Now, over here, it's very funny because you have a flight uniform as the scarecrow. Up here, you have the sign that says, Victory with Vegetables. And you have three dots and a dash. da 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 and what does that mean? Da, 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 da. Well, for those of you who stayed in school and stayed off of drugs, that is actually the opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And five in uh, Roman numerals is a V. So when you watch all those old cartoons and movies and you see that, that was a, a way for people to reference V for victory. So, uh, again, uh, you know, some very uh, nice touches over here, but again, a- away from the main thoroughfare, so uh, we lose a-, a lot of that um, attention uh, to detail. Now, Lou, of course, was very excited, you know, to point out, you know, the, uh, they still have the electric line up there for the uh, red cars, and in fact, down by um, the entrance to Tower of Terror, you can actually see the tracks creeping up through the pavement but the one red car that uh, still uh, exists here that seems to have broken down there's uh, a reason why that's here it's a reason for those of us who have uh, very very um, short memories because uh, Lou when did uh, Sunset Boulevard open? The real sunset. <laughs> the, the one here at the studios. I don't mean to put you put you on the spot here. Ninety four. And in fact, you can see that the June number on this. Well, I bet you it's June. Of <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think it's June of ninety four? Because you I, you just pointed out that on the uh, on the red car it says that the number of the car is six ninety four for June ninety four. Absolutely, six ninety four. Right there in front. Of you I know if you know where to look. And, and I, w- I would say one of, uh, you know, I keep saying, oh, one of my favorite locations. You know, there are just so many things that, that, that are our, our favorite is the uh, reproduction of the Carthay Circle Theater. And um, the Carthay Circle Theater is very important in terms of uh, Disney history because uh, that's where the uh, skeleton dance, the first Silly Symphony, premiered in 1929. And, in fact, the owner of the theater... Fred Miller really took a chance because Walt couldn't sell that cartoon. People kept saying, give us more mice. We don't understand this. Skeletons dancing. So Fred Miller took a chance, huge success, and so the film was able to be booked into uh, New York's Roxy, and it went on, you know, for the whole series. And so Fred Miller was uh, um, willing to take another chance in 1937 and hosted the premiere of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Another huge hit. Also at the Carthay Circle Theater, only one of two theaters that was fitted out with Fantasound for Fantasia in 1940. You know, uh, Gone with the Wind actually premiered at Carthay Circle Theater in, in uh, uh, 39. And uh, unfortunately, uh, around, uh, I believe it's 1969, the entire thing had to be torn down because not uh, earthquake uh, safe, not earthquake uh, uh, savvy for that. So, 
a, a great loss. So again, once again, the Disney uh, Hollywood Studios has the only representation of something from uh, the Hollywood of the 30s and 40s. But again, people walking straight by uh, doesn't it doesn't uh, doesn't make uh, a difference. The Beauty and the Beast uh, uh, theater here, um, the Theater of the Stars, is actually based after the Hollywood Bowl which is the uh, largest natural amphitheater in the world. And, uh, in fact, uh, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, son uh, worked on uh, uh, designing that. And, uh, as I said, at the entranceway to uh, Tower of Terror, you can see where the uh, pavement has worn away, so you can see the bricks and the, the, the rails for the uh, red car. But you also notice as we go in towards the Hollywood Tower of Terror, uh, there are gates, and it says Sunset Hills Estates. Well, this is, this is actually a recreation of the gates that went into the Hollywood land uh, real estate uh, development. And as we go down here to Tower of Terror, and we won't go much into Tower of Terror because, again, that could be an entire another uh, a podcast, but... Uh, just a couple of items that uh, Lou and I had talked about uh, uh, previously that uh, want to bring out is you do not go into the Tower of Terror through the entrance. You're actually going in through a side door here. And uh, um, again, since this was based after many of the popular uh, uh, hotels in uh, Hollywood, like uh, the Chateau Marmont and all that, they had those little side entrances for celebrities. The entrance which has, you know, the portico share and the turnaround and all that, is actually the exit by the gift shop here. So <laughs> that should already tell you this is an attraction you may want to think twice before you go on because you're exiting where you should be entering. Never a good idea. Never a good idea. And, uh, again, wonderful attention to detail in, in, inside the uh, uh, Tower of uh, uh, Terror. And, uh, no, Walt was not a big Twilight Zone fan. He never uh, mentioned that. Not a big, uh, you know, friend of Rod Serling and all of that. But, uh, again, this, uh, this just seems to work, you know. Uh, and Tower of Terror, I guess we can thank Michael Eisner for again because it was his original idea. It was going to be a resort hotel. And, uh, but probably not a good idea to have murders and screaming <laughs> while you're trying to sleep at uh, 2 a.m. And, uh, how are you going to train all of that uh, staff to handle all of that? And then Mel Brooks took a shot at this. and a very different attraction that had Mel Brooks gotten his hands on it. And then there was a version where they were filming a horror movie that was narrated by Vincent Price, you know, before they finally uh, came to this. But uh, one, one final misconception before we uh, uh, wrap up this day, because uh, Lou has promised uh, uh, to take me out <laughs> to lunch here. And so I've been trying to find the most expensive place here at uh, the Hollywood Studios as opposed to the places that I enjoy the most. Um, but uh, just to get rid of one uh, conception, of course, is that the uh, elevator does not fall. You know, so you, you, can, you can tell your friends and family it does not fall. Okay, because, of course, if it fell, in order to have everybody safe at the bottom, it would have to curve, so you'd be on your back, and that doesn't happen. So you don't fall here. You're actually pulled down. There's a double set of cables on the top and on the bottom. That's how they can change the ride sequence, but they still pull you down faster than gravity. That's why if you hold that penny in your hand, it'll float up. But a, a little something, and I don't know whether Lou knew this, when they were uh, testing it, they brought it down, and they actually blew out the bottom. 
because the air <laughs> compacted. They didn't realize that. Boom! That that's uh, not a not not a good idea for that to happen. So, uh, Lou, I'd just like to thank you so much for this opportunity to share these stories. I hope those people who are listening to the podcast will go out there and uh, share it with their friends and family. Hope it's given them a a little bit of insight into uh, uh, the Hollywood. It's still hard for me to call it Disney's Hollywood Studios. It'll be Disney's MGM Studios for a long while for me and probably for a lot of others. But uh, one of my favorite Disney theme parks. And uh, maybe we'll get together and, and cover some of the rest of this sometime. Absolutely. And Jim, thank you so much for really just, believe it or not, so much detail, but we've scratched the surface because there is so much more detail. And you know what? I want people to come out here and not necessarily make the dash for Toy Story, but take the time and explore the park and explore the park during the day and explore it again at night because it's a much different experience there. And you have just, you've given us many (laughs) aha moments uh, and it's been a lot of fun, you know, touring with you in person. I hope people at home get a sense of it. And again, Take this with you when you come to the parks and really try and pick up these details and, and talk to cast members. Look up, look down, touch what you think you're not supposed to touch. Uh, if the sign says don't pull the rope, pull the rope. <laughs> and uh, again, why I think Disney's Hollywood Studios is really just such a treasure trove of so many wonderful details. So, And, and you know, if people love these tours, they should be picking up those CDs you have. Of, oh, uh, you're shameless. <laughs> and and what, what, are, what are those two areas that you uh, cover and, and, and you go through just like we just did, a, a walking tour? It's Adventureland and uh, Main Street, isn't it? And more to come. And more and to come. And more to come. So. And, 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 and what a wonderful what a wonderful investment. And haven't you written books? Shouldn't they be picking gonna, up those books? We're going to eat. And Celebration Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> of which Jim has actually written some amazing, amazing articles uh, for the magazine. Uh, most recently, Peter Pan, The Adventurers Club. I won't even hint to some of the other good stuff that's coming. But, uh, Jim, thank you for all that you do. For sharing this information with me and with the listeners and I hope that they share it with others because you are just such a wealth of information and, and you really are a value to uh, to what the Disney company tries to share with their magic so thank you uh, keep the stories alive keep the magic alive and uh, I'll look forward to talking to you again soon It's time to reveal the answers and winner of our last Walt Disney World Trivia Contest. And the theme of the last contest was Space Mountain and the Wedway People Mover because they were both going down for refurbishment the weekend of April 18th. So I thought it would be fun to honor these two classic attractions. I asked you five trivia questions about these two attractions as well as a bonus question, which you did not need to get right in order to be entered to win. If you got all five correct, you were put into a pool where I randomly selected one winner. If that person did get the bonus question correct, he or she will get a bonus prize. But first, let's go over the questions and answers. Number one, I said that Space Mountain was made up of two tracts, and although they're nearly identical, they're different pretty much only in length. So I asked you, what were their names and which one is longer? 
And most of you knew that when you get to the white control tower as you wander through the queue, if you go to the left, you will ride the alpha track, which is 3,196 feet. If you go to the right, you'll be riding the omega track, which is 3,186 feet. Alpha is 10 feet longer to accommodate the track layout. Question two. On each of these two sets of tracks, 13 trains carry passengers into the depths of space. And I asked you, how many passengers can fit on each train? Each train actually consists of two single-file rocket-shaped cars that seat three people each. So the answer, of course, was six. Many of you threw in the bonus information that, yes, from when the attraction first opened until a refurb in 1989, each of the rockets featured two seats where you would have a front and a rear passenger, kind of like the Matterhorn bomb sleds in Disneyland. But currently, each of the cars holds three passengers. Again, the answer was six. Question three. I asked you, what former guest on the WDW radio show was a lead designer for Space Mountain? And most of you knew that it was a legend of Disney Imagineering, George McGinnis. He played a large part in the creation of not just Space Mountain, but the Mark VI monorail, Horizons, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, countless, countless attractions. You can actually hear Mr. McGinnis talk about not just Space Mountain, but everything that he worked on during his career at Disney in episode 27 of the WDW radio show. Question four. I said that Space Mountain has gone through a number of changes through the years, both inside and out, one of which was the loss of the tall white pylon outside the queue. And this pylon had a mock-up of a single ride vehicle that had four passengers in it, which kind of gave you an impression of what was to lie ahead inside the mountain. I said that each of the four passengers was dressed alike, so I wanted to know what were they wearing and what type of patch was affixed to each of them. Each of the four passengers was dressed in their very funky, very 70s white spacesuits and helmets, and each had a NASA patch on their right chest. The final question was about the Wedway People Mover, Tomorrowland Transit Authority, known as the Blue Line in Tomorrowland. I said that if you listen very, very carefully throughout Tomorrowland, you'll see and hear that there are other lines that travel through this working community according to story. I wanted to know what were those other two lines and where do they go? Well, the other two lines are the red and the green line, and the red line takes passengers off-planet to other destinations in the galaxy, while the green line provides local transportation to Tomorrowland's hoverburbs. Now, the bonus question, again, which you did not need to get correct, was about the TTA as well. Like Space Mountain, that has gone through its changes, so I wanted to know who originally sponsored the TTA, Wedway People Mover, who was the original narrator, and who was he replaced by? And the original sponsor was the Edison Electric Institute for America's investor-owned electric companies. The original narrator was Jack Wagner of early monorail fame, and he was actually replaced by ORAC-1, O-R-A-C-1, the commuter computer. So bravo to all of you who got that right, and it was many of you. I've got to start asking questions that are not so easily Googleable. So anyway, the winner this week is going to get a Walt Disney World Trivia 2009 
Page-A-Day Calendar, the Audio Guide to Main Street USA, a WDW Radio Show button, and a copy of Celebrations Magazine, Issue 3, which just happens to be all about Tomorrowland. Now, our winner this week is Cheryl Chip Buchanan. So congratulations to Cheryl. Please email me your address and I will get your prize package to you out right away. Now, there won't be a new contest this week, but I promise I will have another trivia contest in the next week or two. So definitely stay tuned. I hope you're having fun playing these. I hope maybe you're learning a little something along the way as well. Congratulations again to everybody who got the questions correct. And again, stay tuned for a new contest coming very soon. That's all the time we have this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Big thanks also to my very special guest and good friend, Jim Corcus, for walking through Disney's Hollywood Studios with me. Thanks also to everybody who came by my meet of the month this month on Sunday at the Magic Kingdom. I appreciate it and really enjoyed meeting all of you. And as long as we're talking about meat, I wanted to tell you about another meet that's taking place later on this year. The NFFC which is the club for Disneyana enthusiasts, is going to be holding an all-Disneyana show and sale on Saturday, December 12th, 2009, on Walt Disney property at the Regal Sun Resort in downtown Disney. I will be attending. I'm likely going to have a table as well. Hope to have the opportunity to meet you down there. The show and sales are a lot of fun. Great place to find awesome and very unique Disney collectibles. The show and sale is going to open to the public at 10 a.m. It's going to end at 4. There's free parking over at the Regal Sun. Admission at the door is just $5. And obviously, once we start getting closer, I'll give you more information about that as well. In the meantime, you can go to nffc.org for more information. Also, they're going to be hosting Lunch with a Legend. There's going to be a luncheon and a dessert reception, as well as an auction to benefit Give Kids the World. The Lunch with the Legends is going to be held that Friday night, December 11th at noon and the dessert reception and auction is going to be held Saturday night, December 12th after the show and sale at 7:30. I'll link to the website in the show notes, but you can go to nffc.org for more information about the lunch with a legend and the auction and show and sale as well. Another NFFC meet that I'm going to be attending later on this year is the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet on Saturday. August 15th, 2009. That's going to be in Linwood, Washington, just 20 miles north of Seattle. There, Disney fans from all over the Pacific Northwest and Florida, obviously, are going to be gathering to meet other Disney fans, podcasters, authors, actors, lots more to make and share many, many memories. There's also going to be a Disney Anna show and sale, guest speakers, pin trading, displays, collectibles, a hidden Mickey hunt, Lots more surprises as well. That website is PNW, Pacific Northwest, pnwmousemeet.com. Again, I'll link that up in the show notes and talk more about that event as we start getting closer. Don't forget, if you have questions that you want answered, you can email me at lou at wdwradio.com or you can be heard on the air by calling the voicemail at 888-703-2171. Don't forget to come over Follow me on Twitter, get my instant updates. You can play the Where in the World Am I games, my Finish the Sentence games, 
Lots more. It's free and it's fun. Also, come by, friend me up on Facebook. Join the WDW Radio Show group. I post a lot of announcements there as well. Links to all these right on the homepage of WDWRadio.com where you'll also find the forums. Come by. You can chat about the show, chat about Disney news, chat about the parks, play games, take polls. Lots going on there. We have more than 30,000 registered members at the WDW Radio Forums. Again, fun, free, very, very welcoming. Please come on by. Stay tuned. I will be doing another WDW Radio live audio and video broadcast coming very, very soon. I will post when that's going to happen, not only on the show, but on Twitter and Facebook as well. If you haven't had a chance to check them out yet, I invite you to please come by the website. Check out some of the new daily Disney diary videos that I've been posting from my trips and from Walt Disney World. They're about five minutes right from the parks covering a wide variety of topics. A lot of fun. Hope you guys enjoy those. If you subscribe to the show in iTunes, they should automatically download for you as well. And as always, if you like the show and the videos, please help spread the word. Let others know about us. Review it in iTunes. Come say hi over on Facebook and join the WDW Radio Show group. And of course, my friends, thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to the show each week. I really do appreciate you tuning in. So until next time, remember to always keep moving forward. Follow your dreams. I hope you have a great week this week. See ya. Hey, Lou, this is Erica from Fort Lauderdale. I'm a first-time caller, and as I listened to the show this week, uh, the top ten things with, uh, uh, from uh, Do to Disney in the Rain, and I thought of a couple that I truly love. Um, I love to go, I know you already said this, but going to MGM, it's amazing, or Disney Hollywood Studios. Um, it's so awesome just to walk around and see everything that happens in the rain. It's like amazing. To see all the lights light up, oh, it's amazing. Um, another thing to do is to walk through the castle in the Magic Kingdom and just to sit there and look at the mosaic on the wall and just to take in all the atmosphere. Um, another thing in Magic Kingdom is just to, like you said, to go on Main Street, shop, Main Street shops. I definitely agree with you. That is so much fun. Um, even if you don't want to splurge, just to go and look and then look outside and see all the families running around trying to get out of the rain. It's kind of funny. Um, and one more. Epcot, just walking through all the different countries is awesome. You can see all the different cultures and everything. It's amazing. And you can maybe go on some of the rides there. Uh, it's awesome. I definitely recommend people who are going to Disney and it's raining just to stay. It is awesome. Maybe you should even try to plan it. Hell, I don't know. But love the show. Uh, thanks for letting me call. Um, you get my fill every week of Disney. Thank you so much. Bye. Hi, Lou. It's Leslie Henson, uh, Disney fan 83 on the forum. And I just wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed uh, your interview with Charlie Ridgway. It really was fantastic, and I love so much uh, hearing his walk down memory lane on the opening of Hollywood Studios. A lot of really good information in that interview. Thanks a lot for that. Also, I'm really looking forward to uh, you having Josh on the show. I think it will be a fantastic show, and I hope that's coming up soon. And I just want to give a shout-out to Becky. Hi, Becky. And I look forward to seeing both of you at Adventures Club Weekend coming up in the fall. Congaloosh. Thanks so much. Bye. Hey, this is Corey. Um, 
Well, today's my birthday, April 28th. I'm 17. And unfortunately, I couldn't be at Disney World. I was just there the first two weeks in April. And I told my mom, I'm like, you know, I'm not going to be here for my birthday. And she's just like, well, you know. Anyway, so unfortunately, I didn't get to get into Disney World for free, but it's okay. But um, anyway, I just wanted to say I love your show, and I'm a huge Disney World fan as much as you are. I watch your um, podcast and everything, so just keep it up, and thank you. Bye. Hey, Lou, this is Colby Carden from Columbus, Georgia. Just wanted to share an awesome cast member story. I was sitting down by the pool a week or two ago on our vacation at Wilderness Lodge, and I had one of my refillable mugs, and I'm watching my kids go down the slide, have a great time. And I'm sitting there, and one of the lifeguards comes over and says, Hey, man, are you having a good day? I said, Yeah, I am. He goes, Look, uh, you know, I, I don't care, but you got this cup in your hand, and you're really not supposed to have cups, you know, within five feet of the pool, but it's okay with me, but, you know, if another lifeguard comes and hassle you, I just wanted to give you a heads up. You know, somebody might say something. So, you know, just whatever you'd like to do. And I immediately went, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll I'll, def- I'll take my cup and put it by my seat. But, man, it's just a wonderful customer service. It's not so much uh, what has to be said to somebody, but it's how they say it. Uh, and I read somewhere that uh, one of the Disney philosophies of customer service is, you know, if a customer has to be wrong, uh, let a guest has to be wrong, let them be wrong with dignity. And that's the way I felt. But that's why I keep going to Disney and why the magic is there. And it's a great lesson in business that I, I try to apply to what I do every day. Thanks, man. Keep up the great work. Enjoy the show. Take care. Hey, Lou. This is Jeremy up at Fort Knox, Kentucky. How are you doing? Hope you're having a magical day. Um, sent you an email a few days ago. Um, reference to uh, some uh, family members of soldiers possibly coming down to Walt Disney World uh, has a big trip in October. Uh, it's all in the planning stages right now. Just kind of needed some advice from you. So in one of the emails, I gave you my number. Uh, hopefully uh, you're having a great time, and hopefully I'll see you in June. Uh, we're coming down the 7th through the 15th, so hopefully you can work it out to where uh, the mouse meet and all that stuff together, or meeting of the month, I should say. And hopefully we'll uh, link up. Uh, finally get to meet the uh, guy my wife uh, says I stalk. <laughs> so talk to you later. Bye-bye. Hey, Lou, it's Josh. Um, I was just listening to your recent show. Uh, it's Tuesday right now at about 4 o'clock. And I was just listening. I never really listened to uh, the whole email segment where you answer the emails. When it goes, is mine on here? Nope, not, not going to listen to that. So, um... I was listening, and you actually did mine last, and it was uh, the top three things of your collection. And I was listening to all the stuff that you were naming off, and uh, I was just, uh, I wanted to say, if there's any room in the will, just uh, just remember me. And uh, Lou, if you're wondering why I call in about three times a week, it's so uh, I have a surprise at the show. So when you play it, I never know which one you're going to play. And, uh, well, if hope you guys like the show, and bye. Hey, Lou, this is Craig Wheeler. was just listening to your latest show, number 116, and a listener had written in and asked about Jungle Book in the at Walt Disney World. And uh, two things immediately came to mind. The first was at Pop Century in the 1960s building, there's a giant statue of Baloo and Mowgli. And the other thing that I think of is, well, it's, it's a um, extinct attraction now, but when Animal Kingdom opened um, early on, there was the Journey into the Jungle Book show. 
And uh, that was there for about a year at the theater in the wild. And that was a show that basically followed the story of Mowgli with the Jungle Book. So hope uh, that helps your listener out a little bit. Take care, and thanks for the great show. Bye-bye. Hey, Lou, it's Josh. Um, I already called once today, but I just remembered something that is very important. It is, I know on the show earlier I said um, how I found out the show that uh, I was just typing in WDW, but that is not the actual story. Um, I have been getting on your website, uh, WDW Trivia, for a while, and uh, no, it was, I actually got a HiddenMickeys.com, HiddenMickeyGuide or DisneyWorldTrivia.com, one of them, and um, it had a link to the WDW radio show, and uh, that's how it happened. So, um, everyone, just keep listening to the show. Thanks. Bye.